What's up, everybody? Welcome back for round two of the Fantasy Baseball Rankings Takedown. This is episode 114 of the Roto Sauce podcast. My name is Greg. I'm your host. And on the line with me, it's Toby Gavin from the Batflip Crazy podcast at Batflip Crazy on Twitter. How you doing, Toby? Welcome back, man. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. I'm really excited to be back to tackle outfielder and pitchers. Uh, I, I know, as your listeners know from listening to the first podcast, I can talk uh, a good deal about these uh, players, so I'll try to keep it uh, to a little bit of a minimum so we don't go two and a half hours again on part two. I mean, I thought it was worth it the first time around, and in addition to those uh, outfield and pitching positions you mentioned, we're also going to touch on catcher towards the end of the show. I'm of the belief that catcher isn't super, super important, so we're going to spend a little bit less time on that. But with that said, uh, outfield, I think, is one of the most important positions to figure out this season, and, and basically every season, just because we start so many of them. Most leagues are going to start five outfielders per team, and then you'll often want to plug in outfielders at your utility. Uh, you'll get guys with dual eligibility that include outfield, so um, a lot to cover here. I want to start off with uh, another round of rapid-fire eligibility questions, and we weren't very rapid-fire the first time around, so uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it goes uh, on this episode, but uh, Chris Davis, if he has outfield eligibility, does he make your top 15 at the position? Um, I think I'd probably have him right outside the top 15. Right now, my, my top 15 uh, ends with Cody Bellinger. So I actually might have I might have him at 15. I'd have to dig in a little bit, but I probably like him more than Bellinger and Hoskins uh, just because he's been so consistent. Obviously, the batting average doesn't help at all, and neither does the stolen bases, but he's an elite contributor in home runs and RBI and runs, and he's actually had some improving skills, especially last year. And so I might bump Bellinger over him just because of the elite production that he provides in those categories. Yeah, I've got Chris Davis at 17th, uh, just behind Bellinger and Reese Hoskins. I like that Hoskins and Bellinger give you that dual eligibility. I think there's a little bit more just overall upside because of the speed that they can contribute uh, and a little bit more help in batting average than Chris Davis. But what you said about his consistency is the key for me, too. I just I love how you can basically bank on 35 to 40 homers from him and maybe even more every season. So uh, he's, he's definitely an appealing target, if he, especially if he has that outfield eligibility. Next guy up is Nelson Cruz. I think even on Yahoo, who has like the loosest position eligibility requirements ever, <laughs> Cruz is like the only util-only guy they have. Uh, but if for some reason he did have outfield eligibility, would he be inside your top 20 at the position? Uh, top 20, uh, it would be close. Let's see. I would have him, yes. I would have him inside my top 20. He would probably be either 20 or 19. Uh, I'd have him either between Lorenzo Cain and Eddie Rosario at 19 or right after Eddie Rosario at 20. Uh, the age is a little bit of a factor in that, but you know the projection systems love Cruz. They actually have him as the 34th best hitter uh, in my evaluations, and he's going way late in drafts. And so I think he's being penalized for that youthful-only spot. What do you think about him this year? Yeah, I'm in kind of that same range. I have him probably somewhere in that outfielder 20 to 24 range, right around Rosario, like you said, around Marcelo Zuna. I, f I feel like those guys kind of profile similarly with that kind of 30 homer potential. But yeah, the util only thing is an issue. Uh, do you do you bump him down at all, like when you're drafting, uh, or do you just are you willing to jam a util player, you know, right away just because the stats are there? 
Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think the market is undervaluing him in general. I I haven't checked his ADP recently, but I think he's in the high 90s, if not below 100s. So he's not a guy that I'm, you know, that I'm picking at pick 50, for instance, or where maybe his valuation would lead you to. I think you can wait a little bit and and get him uh, further down the draft boards. But I actually own a ton of shares right now, you know, getting him in that kind of 80 to 100 range. You know, the, the projections just absolutely love him. And he didn't really show any declines last year. He got a little bit lucky on balls in play. His expected average was much higher than um you know, the, I think he hit around 260 last year and all the metrics show that he still had a really strong batted ball quality. I think the twins have an underrated lineup. So I really like him this year and I think you can wait a little bit on him and get him for a good value. Yeah. I mean, the thing that he offers over some of those other guys were comparing him to like Rosario, like Ozuna, maybe like a, another older player like Justin Upton is that, that batting average uh, that Cruz is going to give you. And I think that does matter. And I think that that is what makes him a player who's still appealing and worth targeting despite the, you know, 38 year old season that he's about to enter here. I, I'm not super excited about older players like that very often, but um, I don't know that he's like Chris Davis. Nelson Cruz has just been so consistent. Next up, Nick Castellanos. Where does he rank for you in outfield? I have him at about number 32. I am generally pretty low on him uh, overall. Like I feel like I'm, I never own Castellanos. There's always somebody mm-hmm. in my drafts who values him higher. Uh, where do you fall on him? Well, I actually really appreciate the reminder because somebody reached out to me in, about my rankings and let me know that I didn't have Castellanos on there at all. I guess I, I had moved him from third base to outfield but forgot to plug him into my rankings. He is within my top 30. I have him at 27th among outfielders after Will Myers and before Mitch Haniger. Uh, I really like the, bat, the batted ball quality. I think the batting average is going to be there. I think the counting stats will be there even though the Tigers lineup is – pretty bad he'll be in the middle of that lineup and i wouldn't be surprised to see him traded at some point during the season there were on uh, on and off talks throughout the off season and if he were to upgrade both the ballpark that he was hitting in because tiger stadium especially for power the right center power where he hits a lot of his uh his fly balls it's the worst place in baseball for that and so if he were to get traded he'd be i think that would give him a pretty significant bump more so than a lot of other players. But even on the Tigers, you know, I like him to be able to replicate, if not improve on what he did last year. But do you find yourself drafting Nick Castellanos that much? Because for me, I find he's in this zone of outfielders where either I've already paid up for the position and I'm chasing some other spot in my roster when Castellanos is going, or I just look at him as an available outfielder and I look a little bit further down the ranks and there, there are just more values I like a little deeper. Is he a guy you've ended up with much on your rosters? I actually don't have him on any teams. I had him on one team last year. I think he's one of those guys who, you know, if he drops maybe a round or two in the draft, I might look at. But I agree with you that I think there are nicer values or more well-rounded players. Like I think we mentioned on the first podcast and Andrew McCutcheon, that's one example of a guy who is going well later than Castellanos, who I like a little bit more just because he's, He's a bit more well-rounded, but I think the point you make overall is good. And that's, you know, just because you have somebody higher up in your rankings doesn't necessarily mean that they represent a better value. And I think that's one of the limitations of ranking. So Castellanos is a guy I don't own. I don't have Hanager either. And I think that might just be a case, like you said, where 
I've either addressed some of my, you know, my, my first and second outfielder slot by this point because I like guys further up more, or I think that there's better values lower in the draft. Yeah, totally. And that makes a lot of sense because when I look at our rankings further up, we agree on a lot of the same players. And, you know, where we don't agree is just, I don't know, kind of players that we just inherently don't like. Like you have Chris Bryant ranked a lot lower than me, but you still have him 16th. Uh, that means you're not going to get him, but I'm the type, like, you know that somebody else is going to take him that high. But Castellanos and Hanniger are in that zone where we're just not going to end up with them based upon how we like to construct our teams. I think that's, it is interesting, and you're right, it does show kind of a limitation of rankings. Uh, let's dig a little bit deeper into some of the guys we disagree on, and I want to start with George Springer. I feel like maybe I'm paying a bit too much for his situation there in Houston. Like I look at his age, I look at his surrounding lineup, et cetera, and I find that really appealing. Like I feel like he's a, a really good bet to approach, you know, 90 to 100 runs and RBI, hit a bunch of homers, chip in a little bit in steals, and perhaps you know the similarity that he has in this way to someone like Chris Bryant is why I like him and why you don't like him as much. Like this maybe isn't hmm. your type of player. What do you think? Yeah. No, I think that's a really good characterization of it. I like Springer. I think he's really good. My projections have him as a $2 value, a $19 player, $18 ADP, but it rounds up to $2 worth of value. Very solid across the board, especially in runs, some power. But like like you mentioned, he's not necessarily my type of guy going around this spot because I just think there's some better, more well-rounded outfielders. And what I mean by that is there are outfielders who are going to contribute the two scarcest categories, batting average and stolen bases. And I think that may just be, you know, the very roto-centric way that I look at my rankings and the way that I look at roster construction. But that's why I don't have Springer this year. But he isn't a guy that I that I'm that I'm down on. I think it's similar to Castellanos. Yeah, and, and I think for me, like I rank him so highly because I want it to be clear when someone looks at my rankings that he is a player that I'm willing to target and that I'm willing to go higher than ADP on. Like I probably don't need to have him all the way up as my outfielder 10 because of where he's at in ADP. So I, I maybe I should drop him down to kind of reflect ADP a little bit more. But again, this stuff is also arbitrary. It's hard to know. Like I probably would draft him over someone like... I don't know, maybe not. Like, I'm looking at who I have him ranked over. Like, I have him ranked over Reese Hoskins and Cody Bellinger. Like, I should probably put him behind those guys because I know those other guys are going to go early, and I could still potentially land one of them in the second round and get George Springer in the third round. So maybe I need to kind of reconsider how I have him ranked and adjust accordingly. Do you think that's fair? Um, I mean, do you think there's logic in that? There, there could be. I mean, one of the things about the rankings is, and I think this gets back to our overarching point, is – you know, rankings aren't a substitute for your strategy or, you know, uh, value necessarily, right? So just because you have a guy ranked higher up, I would leave him there if you think that he is, you know, in a vacuum, a better player than the other guy. Uh, but, you know, knowing like people need to know heading into their drafts what ADP is or where the market is valuing people so that they have a better sense of maximizing value. Because you could take Springer because you think he's the best guy there. And that's the right decision. But if you wait around and get him later, right, you, you, there's a little bit of risk that you lose him. And you, if you're willing to take that risk to, to maximize your value, then that's a decision that you kind of have to make at that point in time. So I would put him in the order that you think, you know, like in a vacuum, who is the better player? And then I think it's up to folks to kind of say, 
oh, well, look at this guy. He's ranked higher, but he's going later in the drafts. Maybe I can wait a little bit on him, but he's definitely something I should yeah, kind of the, the flip side of this would be Yasiel Puig, who you have up as your outfielder 13, and I have him down around outfield, uh, or, or I think I have him at 23 the last time I did my rankings. I might have updated this more recently. Like I feel like I moved him up. I, I mean, I don't want to belabor what we talked about in our overall rankings discussion, but again, in a vacuum as like a player, I worry that Puig is closer to someone like Eddie Rosario than he is to someone like Bryce Harper. And so you have Puig and Harper ranked very similarly, and... Maybe the Great American Ballpark factor skews things a little bit in Puig's favor, but you know his overall kind of track record of inconsistency with playing time and whatnot over the past few years still kind of scares me enough to keep him out of my top fifteen, despite the appeal of of his new situation. And maybe I'm not thinking about it in the right way. And I, I like that you have him ranked thirteenth, though. I guess is what I'm getting at because that shows that you believe he is that type of player that you would take in a vacuum over the other guys ranked lower. Um, but I, I'm just kind of curious, do you do you feel like he is that much of a lock to hit like over 30 homers and over 15 stolen bases? Like if if you look at the projections, those are kind of where he maxes out on fan graphs. And, and I'm curious, how close do you think he's going to get to those or, or how far do you think he's going to exceed them? Yeah, Puig is, is one of my most owned players this year. I absolutely love Yasiel Puig, not only because he is the, the bat flip king uh, and because of the way he plays. I just love the energy and enthusiasm, but I love the situation this year. I mean, you mentioned Great American Ballpark, one of, if not the best uh, home run hitting ballpark in baseball. And so that is one aspect that I do love. The second aspect that I love about Puig is – is the situation in the sense that I think he has a team that paid a lot for him and that's going to be letting him play every single day. You know, this uh, last year, you know, only 444 plate appearances because he had two DL stints. He still managed to hit 23 home runs and steal 15 bases. In 2017, he didn't even get 600 plate appearances and he finished with 28 home runs and 15 stolen bases in a fully healthy season. I think that a a 30 home run, uh, 15 to 20 stolen bases is not, you know, even if you look at his projection, like my aggregate projection for him of the three projection systems is 80 runs, 29 home runs, 85 RBI, and 14 stolen bases with a 271 batting average. But that's only in 579 plate appearances. So when you look at like a Bryce Harper or a Charlie Blackman or some other outfielders ahead of them, their projections are based on 632 plate appearances and 652 plate appearances. Now, you know, they also have a track record, at least, you know, Blackman does, of hitting that really high plate appearance total. And I think Puig is being docked for playing on the Dodgers where they didn't start him last year at, in this, during the second half against the Dodgers, and where he didn't get in that lineup every day in previous season. And so now in a new situation where they paid a hefty price for him, for them, for him, they need to compete right away. I think he's going to get every day at bats. If he stays healthy, which is a question mark, uh, I think he gets over 600 plate appearances, and I like him to go 30-20 this year. 30-20, man, that's bold. I like it. Um, let's move on to Nomar Mazzara next. And the one thing I like about Mazzara and why I have him ranked so highly is he has been pretty consistent in terms of bankable power stats. And he's only 23 years old. This is just the type of player who is my 
inherent fantasy kryptonite. Like that mm. young player who's always primed to emerge is a guy I'm always willing to pay up for. You know, hashtag this is the year. Like, is it okay to do that with Mazzara? Do you think, you know, kind of presuming a breakout is presuming too much? Yeah, I think I think it's really challenging. Mazzara has so many good things going for him. You know, he's got what three full base uh, major league seasons already, and he's only 24. Like you said, he has produced in the past uh, RBI home runs. He hasn't necessarily shown that top end power. Uh, if I remember correctly, I don't have it in front of me, but he does hit um, he does hit a lot of ground ground balls, and so I think that for the time being. Uh, but yeah, 55% ground balls last year. So that puts a little bit of a cap on his home run total. He's actually never hit more than uh, 20 home runs in a season. He also has pretty bad platoon split. Um, he struggles a lot against lefties. Let's see. Yeah, for a for his career, he's a 235 hitter against lefties with only nine home runs in 413 or 439 plate appearances. So he's doing most of his damage against righties. And so I think the challenge, uh, the challenging thing about him is I think he's a solid player. I think he's a value where he's going. He is kind of one of those players for me that I don't necessarily like because he's not contributing that much in stolen bases and or anything really. And his batting average, you know, topped out at 266 uh, in any one season. Now, the thing that I do like about him is that he's really young and you know, progression isn't linear for prospects. You know, they can make big leaps just out of nowhere, really, um, because they've built up the plate appearances, they've seen the pitchers, and, you know, they're um, they're primed. And a lot of times these young guys, once they hit a certain level of plate appearances, there tends to be a little bit of uh, improvement. So he could be a guy that takes a really big leap forward. I think a lot of the projection systems are seeing at least some leap for him because they have him, you know, with a better batting average and more home runs than he's ever hit before. So I think they're seeing it a little bit. It could definitely happen. The question is whether you're willing to pay for that now. And I don't think I am. I think I'm more in the camp of kind of waiting for him to force me to, uh, you know, kind of increase that that value or, um, you know, draft him. I guess what I like about him is – that I don't feel like I have to pay that much to get that upside. Like we talked about Castellanos, we talked about Mitch Haniger earlier, and I, I don't see a ton of difference in the upside between those two players and someone like Mazzara, and Mazzara is going later than them in ADP. So, like, he's the type of player who I see further down ADP, and I say, okay, I can afford to pass on Haniger, I can afford to pass on Castellanos, um, and, and other guys in that range, not just those guys specifically, but because I, I do see that appeal with Mazzara, and that's why I... Again, I, I rank him highly, kind of like I did with Springer, to kind of show that he is a player I'm interested in and that I'm targeting. But the point you make about his stolen base contributions or, or lack thereof is one that I, I should probably pay more attention to. Like, it's not like he's even giving you five steals. Like, I think he has, you know, one or zero in most seasons. So um, de definitely a downside with his game. One guy who isn't going to hurt you in stolen bases, theoretically, is Ramon Lariano of the Oakland A's. Why are you down on this speedster, but not others? I, I assume it's probably related to his strikeout rate, which was 28.4% last season. And uh, if you care about spring stats and, you know, caveats aside, I think that one thing I do care about when I look at spring stats are how many, like, strikeout to walk ratio, essentially, for hitters. And he's struck out 11 times in 33 at-bats across 13 games. So he's still whiffing a lot. Is that part of why you're down on Laureano relative to other stolen base contributors? 
Yeah, I think, you know, I, I should probably dive in a little bit deeper on Loriano uh, because I think he does have a nice power-speed combination. I mean, uh, he got a little bit of notoriety last year because he had a pretty high barrels per plate appearance rate um, to go along with the stolen bases. You know, when I take a look at the profile overall, you know, I don't mind it at all. So maybe he's a guy that I, I should bump up. Just looking at some of his rolling averages, you know, he steadily improved his in-zone contact. Uh, up to 86%, so better than league average. And then his O-swing, or his, uh, you know, a proxy for plate discipline, essentially how frequently you chase pitches outside the zone, is also well below league average. And those are two of the things that I find really, really helpful when analyzing hitters for batting average and on-base percentage. And so he may actually be a guy uh, that I need to bump up uh, a little bit. I'm trying to see where I where I have him in the rankings, but... He's definitely a guy that maybe deserves a little bit of a boost now that I'm taking uh, another look because power speed, especially where he's going in drafts, which I think is around like 170 or something like that, it's really hard to get that. Um, and he's in a good lineup. He should play every day because he's providing that uh, the good defense. And it looks like he he really earned everything that he did last year. His expected average is in line with his is a little bit lower, but you know around 280 as well. Uh, the home runs he more than earned. So maybe he's a guy that I need to look at and kind of bump up a little bit. Um, I haven't done as deep a dive on every single player yet. Uh, so this may be a good example of of kind of needing to go back and and uh, and review uh, these rankings a little bit more. Yeah, I, I should eat crow on the next one. And we talked about Ryan Braun on the last episode in the context of first baseman, but I want to look at him again through the lens of outfield and in the show notes I wrote, at this stage of his career, he's just Nomar Mazzara without the upside, right? And a- after we had our discussion about Mazzara, I realized, oh, except Ryan Braun is going to steal some bags. And that that's why I had this argument I, I was tr- going to try to make is pretty flawed. But um, we, we, we don't need to go too much deeper into Braun. So uh, if you want to hear more about what Toby thinks about him, uh, check out the last episode. Let's get to Jesse Winker next. And tell me why I shouldn't be afraid of Matt Kemp or Scott Shebler, whoever, like where do you have concerns about the Winker playing time? Because that seems to be the only strike against him at this point. Uh, or do you also have concerns about his power or are you not concerned at all? Where, where do you stand on him? Because you do have him ranked a lot higher than I do. It seems like you're more optimistic than me. Yeah, I really like Winker a lot. I don't, I'm not too concerned about playing time. I mean, whether he'll reach 600 plate appearances or not, I'm not sure. Uh, the Reds have stated this spring training that they that he will get 500 plate appearances this year, and I do think that they're planning to bat him um, leadoff. Uh, he has exceptional plate skills. Uh, he has really high uh, in-zone contact rate. He's got elite jo- Joey Votto-like plate discipline. Um, he's really, really, you know, that's kind of his calling card, and he put that into play last year Um you know, during uh, I don't know if it was just the second half, but at least like after the beginning of the of the season, after the beginning of the season, he was just absolutely um, on fire. Uh, if you look at in July, uh, he hit 442. Uh, it's only 60 plate appearances. But then in June, uh, in 96 plate appearances, he hit 308. Um, and that was after his hard hit rate started to rebound. He really struggled towards the beginning of the year, and I think it all goes back to the shoulder injury. Uh, he had surgery on that shoulder that ended his season, but I think it bothered him throughout the year. And he even mentioned um, this offseason that he hadn't 
that his shoulder hadn't felt this good in years. So it seemed like something that might have been bothering him for a while. And so I think, um, you know, I, I expect the hard hit rate uh, to, to be strong this year. I think he's going to make really good contact. And I think he has about the most solid base of any player in baseball um, when it comes to the end zone contact and the plate discipline. Uh, so, for instance, over his last 40 games, uh, his chase rate was around 20 percent, 22 percent. His uh, end zone contact was at 93 percent. So essentially he was Alex Bregman. Um, he was Alex Bregman and Jose Ramirez from a plate discipline and contact perspective over his last 40 games. And his hard hit rate was over 50 percent, which is over 15 percent better than league average. Now, his problem, like a lot of really good hitters, including Joe, Jody, Joey Votto, is that he doesn't hit a ton of fly balls. You know, over only 33% fly balls over that same period of time. But I think that's an adjustment that a player who has that type of profile can make. I think we've seen it happen with Bregman and Ramirez. And I think he has, he really has that, that level of skill with the bat in his hands. And so I really like him a lot. He's actually a guy that I'm really disappointed in myself because I don't have any shares here, uh, but I plan to, to make sure that I do before the uh, draft season's out. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I love him as a player too. I drafted him last year as kind of like a you know a flyer in the later rounds, and I, I hope that he gets the playing time. My concern is just that they have so many guys there, especially with Nick Senzel slated to come up and play outfield too potentially. That you know something's got to give here, right? And while they can say that they want to get Jesse Winker 500 plate appearances, will they actually be able to do it? I'm not sure, and that's why I bump him down in my rankings. Who do you think takes the biggest hit in that outfield? Do you think Kemp is just going to come off the bench, or do you think it's Shebler or Senzel, or, or where who's going to you know suffer uh, if Jesse Winker does succeed? Yeah, I think it's Matt Kemp for sure. Um, I don't, I don't think, um, and I think that's reflected in ADPs. I think Kemp is is pretty far down there. I think that Kemp is uh, he's a terrible outfielder uh, from a defensive perspective. The Reds do not have a great outfield already defensively. And so I think what's probably going to happen is Scott Shebler will start out in center field. Uh, he's not a great center fielder. And then when, um, you know, in, in early April and in, in middle of April, once the uh, the deadline has passed for years of eligibility, I think you're going to see Nick Senzel come up and play center field. That's where he's been playing this spring. Uh, he's a pretty, pretty quick guy. It sounds like the adjustment to center field has been going pretty well. I think the Reds are really going for it this year. I think that's clear with the moves that they've made this offseason. I think with that said, I think they need to put the best team on the field. And while Kemp can Kemp can hit a decent amount, um, you know, he made the all-star team last year. I don't think he plays good enough defense. And he really he didn't play well down the stretch uh, with the Dodgers. And I think you saw them kind of lose faith in him as well. And so I don't think he's a part of their, their team long term. So I see him being the guy that is hurt the most by this. And, I think Senzel ends up moving to center and Winker at least gets the strong side of the platoon uh, playing in in, uh, in left field with Regan Wright on a daily basis. Totally. I mean, I hope I hope that's how it works out because, yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge Matt Kemp fan at this stage of his career, and Winker is a, an exciting young player. Let's talk Max Kepler. And if you're playing in, in a non-base league, I get it. Kepler offers a lot, and he's a very appealing player in those formats. But the, the low BABIP, the low batting average, like, if you look at his projections, uh, most of the ones on Fangrass have him around 250, but he's a career 233 hitter. Now, again, we can talk about how growth isn't linear for players, but 
at this point, like he's going to have to show me that he can hit better than 240 before I, I bank on that, you know, when I'm drafting. And I'm curious what you think about him and why you have him ranked as highly as you do. You have him as your outfielder 39. He's down at, in like the 60s for me. Like this is one of our biggest discrepancies in to- inside that like top 50 or 60. So why am I wrong about Max Kepler's batting average and why do the projections have it right? I mean, is a 250 average enough to, you know, kind of justify the other contributions he's making? Like, tell me what you think about Kepler. Yeah. So the thing that I love about Kepler is similar to Jesse Winker. Kepler had elite plate discipline last year uh, over his last 80 games, a 24.6% O swing. So very solid there, as well as really good contact skills. 92.7% in-zone contact. And the reason why I like those two metrics a lot is that, you know, the O-swing tells us whether they're swinging at good pitches, and then the uh, Z-contact tells us whether they make contact with good pitches inside the zone. And so I think those are two really critical points. But I think those uh, skills and the improvements that he made from just a managing the strike zone perspective uh, were really, really key last year. Uh, he also had a very high fly ball rate, 45.9%, which I think is reflected in that low BABIP. And the hard hit rate is better than league average. And so I think all of that combines to make him a really intriguing player. Uh, and what I like the most about Kepler is that he's actually new to baseball. He's only been playing organized baseball, I think, for like six years or something like that because he came over from Germany. Um, and he and last year he showed some really incredible improvements Um, in just in playing baseball. He's very good defensively. He's actually pretty fast as well. Um, And so the one area where he really struggles is, is with, um, with fly balls that aren't quality fly balls. So 25.1% of his balls in play last year were pop-ups. So essentially automatic outs. And so he's a guy who's like one adjustment away from breaking out in a very, very strong fashion whether or not that'll happen, I'm not sure, but the profile is good enough as it is, I think, to merit where he's going. I think his ADP is around 230 or something like that. I think he's already producing value there, and then I think there's the opportunity for him to take the next step and be like a top 25 outfielder if he can lower his launch angle just slightly um, so that he's driving these uh, these fly balls a little bit more. Yeah, I, and what you talked about with those fly balls is, is readily apparent. Like if you pull up uh, his batted ball stuff on Fangraphs, like his fly ball rate has gone up each of the past three seasons. But for whatever reason, his home run to fly ball ratio has gone down over each of those three seasons. So it, it makes sense what you're talking about with him hitting more pop ups and you know resulting in a bad BABIP. And that's that's why I'm really worried about him is that I see that consistently terrible BABIP, and I, I just find it hard to believe that he's going to improve his batting average if he keeps that up. Now, if he does make some sort of adjustment, um, I'm willing to eat crow on Max Kepler, uh, but for now, he's not a player I'm going to be drafting uh, much, if at all. Uh, another guy I'm, I'm probably not going to touch this year is Byron Buxton, but you ranked him pretty aggressively, so are you buying a, a fresh batch of spring training hype here? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I think where I have him going right now, after Austin Meadows, before Kyle Schwarber, this is in the kind of 180 to 220 range, I would say on average for outfielders. So I'm not buying Buxton. I think that, you know, at this point in the draft, you can go for upside. And I think Buxton certainly has a lot of that upside. He has the stolen bases. um, He's got some power. Uh, What isn't there is the plate skills, you know, the contact skills, uh, the management of the zone. It's just not as strong. Uh, And so I think 
at that range, like 180 to 220, I think the upside is is enough to warrant that type of a pick. But I think right now, after the start of his spring, I think his ADP has risen to like 150 or so. And so at that at that area, I'm not taking him. I'm not buying him where the market has him at right now. Uh, but I do think that if he falls in drafts, he might be worth you know just taking a shot at because the upside is so high. I don't think he's going to hit that, but it's always a possibility. Yeah, and we've already been over how you definitely value stolen bases a little bit higher than I do, uh, and that that is definitely indicative of this ranking. Next up, Padres outfielders, just all of them. How are we supposed to sort out this mess? Like, I, I have no idea. I'm avoiding it, but maybe I just have PTSD from too many Manuel Margot shares last season. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, definitely don't draft uh, Manny Margot uh, would be my one recommendation. I'm generally staying away from the Padres outfield. I think the one guy that intrigues me the most is Fran Mil Reyes, just because he, um, just because he's got enormous power. He manages the strike zone well, and he actually makes contact pretty well for a big guy. He's also shown the ability to make some adjustments early on in his major league career. So I like him a lot, um, just as a guy who's going pretty late in draft, who might be able to, who has pretty considerable power upside. He's also a terrible defender, though. So that's a little bit of a bummer. Renfro, I, I like a lot in terms of the power metrics, but I just don't see him getting the playing time in that crowded outfield. I mean, Will Myers is there, and Will Myers is going to play every day. Uh, Renfro is not particularly good um, in the outfield, and so he doesn't necessarily have that pushing him up, whereas Margot does. Um, so, you know, Renfro has power, but I think you can get power late with a little bit more uh, assurance of playing time. I'm just kind of staying staying clear because we don't know exactly what is going to happen. And so, yeah, that's that's just been my approach mostly. You have Reyes in one or two places just because he fell pretty far, but that's really the only guy I'm targeting. Yeah, totally. I think this is one of those situations where if you are drafting and you want a piece of the Padres outfield or the aforementioned Reds outfield, you probably just want to take the ones that are cheapest. And so with the Reds, that... I mean, that would be Matt Kemp, I suppose, but if you, we've kind of identified Kemp as the most likely one to lose there, but uh, in a situation like this with the Padres, I, I think they're all cheap enough to where you can just take the one you like, uh, but again, I'm probably not paying for any of them except for, you know, Will Myers. I think Will Myers is a, is a fine value where he's going. Um, last guy that we really disagree on here is Jock Peterson. And I'm wondering, is he just Max Kepler West or something more? You know, I think the problem with Jock Peterson um, is, you know, number one, he's on the Dodgers. And so he's not going to bat against lefties. And so I think that, that, you know, if you look at the AL West, I was listening to the, uh, the Launch Angle podcast earlier today, and they had a great point on there about how many lefties there are in the NL West who are pitching like more so than any other division. And so I think that's going to limit some of the playing time that Peterson gets. Uh, the Dodgers never give anybody a ton of plate appearances. They didn't give Puig a lot of plate appearances. Uh, they haven't given Peterson a lot of plate appearances. He also doesn't have the same level of skills. So when we look at his in-zone contact rate, it's below league average. He's actually, uh, his plate discipline was at its worst last year. It was right around a 35% O swing. So he chases the pitches outside the zone 5% more than league average. I think he had a couple runs there where things looked really nice. The ground ball percentage got low. The hard hit rate uh, was elevated, but he doesn't have the same type of consistent profile that I'm looking for. And so that combined with the 
the limited plate appearances, especially in weekly leagues. Like if you're in daily, I don't think it's a bad idea to draft him late and start him again against righties. But in weekly leagues or even we, uh, leagues where you you change out for the weekend, it's really hard, you know, to put in guys who who aren't going to be playing, you know, maybe two out of two out of four games or two out of three games. And so for that reason, he he, lo- he loses a lot of value for me. Yeah, I'm just not drafting him at all, really. I have him as my outside the top 100 outfielders in my rankings. You have him at outfielder 71, but again, that's probably more indicative of. Yeah, I mean, we're both low on him relatively, and we're probably not going to be drafting him. I think he's a fine best ball pick, but even in like a daily league, I, I don't know. I just feel like you can do better. I, I'm not really a, uh, or I don't find Jock Peterson that appealing. Um, I'm dropping him in my rankings right now as <laughs> as we speak. I also moved Loriano up, so uh, this has been helpful. We're making progress, man. This is how we do it. Um, there you go. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I mentioned how we, you know, have already discussed stolen base production mattering more to you than to me, and that was on the last show. And I, I guess I should accept that some people are going to hear this one first, uh, and then maybe go back to the other <laughs> show. So uh, let, let's dive a little bit more into that. Steals are certainly more scarce nowadays, and I, I talked on the last show about how I might be a little bit behind the times there, but because there are so few steals to go around, I don't feel like I need all that many i mean i want to get some but i don't necessarily have to win the category now if you're playing in an overall format that's different of course and we we talked about that a lot on the last show too and i I generally feel though that if power is easier to come by for all drafters i want to make sure that i get higher end power sources than my opponents those who are going to help me and not hurt me in the other categories like i don't want to have to roster jock peterson and Randall Gritchuk, if I can help it, I'd rather roster the big power guys who are going to help my average and chip in in steals. And so that tends to be how I look at the steals versus homers debate. And I think another way we can kind of look at this is to look at like which two category archetype of player is in the shortest supply. And I think outfield is a good position to kind of center this discussion around. Like, do you want to get guys who chip in both homers and steals, players like Tommy Pham or Ian Desmond, or is it a more scarce commodity to get a player who chips in and stolen bases in average like Malik Smith or Ender Inciarte? Or do you want to go for that homer plus average player like Nick Castellanos and David Peralta? Or I guess alternatively, we could say homers plus OBP. Um, I, I think we have to acknowledge here that runs and RBI are a little less dependent upon skills. And we also kind of have to assume that all other categories are neutral if we're just weighing these two stats together as pairs, you know what I mean? And so I'm curious where you think this, you know, demand versus supply argument or discussion comes into play, like homers plus steals, stolen bases plus average or homers plus average. Like does the, does the demand for these different archetypes of players match the supply, uh, you know, in drafts? What do you think? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think the thing that's most important uh, from my perspective, I have a very different way of building teams, I think, than a lot of people. Number one, because I play in a lot of overall competitions. And number two, like I really aim for balance because I think um, – I've mentioned this on my podcast a couple times, but I really think that a balanced approach to all the categories is the safest kind of insurance policy. Like the, the most similar um, comparison I'd say is like if you're investing in stocks, you want a diverse – portfolio so that all of your, uh, you know, that you're not relying on one stock uh, for, you know, all of your income. Like you need one stock to do really well in order to do well. You want to kind of spread the risk. 
when you don't take a balanced approach, when you rely on like a Malik Smith for all of your stolen bases, and then Malik Smith injures his elbow in the preseason and is going to miss the first two games of the season and has a little bit of a question mark around, you know, like some of his playing time early, you know, then you've got all of your eggs in one basket. So what I would say is the most important thing is just to go into your draft and have a plan about the either the type of player you want to draft or how you're going to address the most scarce categories, which for me, you know, are batting average and uh, stolen bases. And so that's why I put such an emphasis on those two categories, whether I'm playing in an overall competition or not, because if I find myself being later in drafts, like we talked, you mentioned the archetypes, like the archetype of the home run hitter is available later in drafts. It's available later in drafts with a penalty though, too, right? Like, you know, you, you mentioned like the batting average in the home run archetype. There are very few players, you know, that have outside of the first, you know, handful of rounds that have that type of archetype. There's very few players who have the stolen bases in the batting average. I'd say that's the rarest archetype outside of like even the top three rounds, maybe uh, three, four rounds. And so that's why I put such an emphasis on those types of guys is because they allow you to have both a balanced approach and and they're not available later. So, um, you know, whereas there's other guys, you know, like you mentioned, kind of, you know, David Peralta or uh, other guys, you know, for me, those guys are going around pick 130. That's late in the draft. And so if that, if that type of archetype is available that late on, then it's not necessarily something I have to emphasize. But I try to steer clear of Malik Smith, of Billy Hamilton, of what I call the rabbits, because they're going to punish you in Roto, in RBI, in home runs. Billy Hamilton's going to punish you in batting average as well. And so you're essentially paying a price across categories to get the stolen bases that you could have addressed earlier on in the draft by going after a different archetype of player. So I don't know if that's answering your question exactly, but that's kind of why I put such an emphasis on those two categories early on is because they don't exist without a huge penalty later on in drafts. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying. And I guess what, one of the things that sticks out to me is that you you noted that power is available late. And while I think that is the case, I think that more often those, those late power options are the ones who are going to hurt you in steals and in batting average like more often than not uh you know your daniel palkas your randall grichucks like that that archetype of player is readily available in the mid to late rounds whereas you know the guys that chip in like i think batting average is the most scarce category or the category that matters the most and, and the one that we really can never overlook like you have to spend early on batting average uh, or else you're just punting it. And if you're punting it, like you said, you're just taking on too much risk, whether you're playing overall or a single league. I agree that batting average needs to be paramount. I guess my pushback is on steals. And yeah. and that's because the rabbits do exist. Uh, and I'm, I'm de- generally not the player who goes after those guys either. But, you know, the more balanced, like, lighter speed guys like in Ciarte, I'm trying to think of other players who kind of fit that mold, you know, like an Eddie Rosario or like a Yasiel Puig even, who you don't have to pay up for in the top three rounds. You can get him in the fourth or fifth or whatever. And those guys give you enough speed while also helping you out in the other categories that I'd rather lean towards those guys who are giving me a little bit more of a boost in power because I don't want to take on the batting average liability late in draft if I have to. Or if I do, 
it's because I already have the cushion of, you know, the top of my draft being loaded with really good average guys. Now, at the top of the draft, you want guys who contribute in as many categories as possible. I think that that's, you know, very intuitive and, and pretty easy to wrap your brain around. I guess my question was more about, again, like later in drafts, like what is readily available and how much of it is category neutral plus positive in, in two of the other categories relative to, you know, category negative and positive in, in two prominent categories. And for me, I feel like it's easier to pick up steals later without killing your batting average. Um, but maybe I'm not factoring in how much those types of players kill your RBI as well. And so that might be where the disconnect is for me. Generally, I agree with you, though. Like, balance is key. Like, I'm trying to uh, draft as many different guys who kind of amalgamate, like, good categories across the board. Like, I, I think my TGFBI outfield is a pretty good example. Like, I waited a really long time on outfield, but I ended up taking Grichuk, Andrew McCutcheon, and Cedric Mullins. It's, it's kind of like each one of those guys does something a little bit different, right? Like, McCutcheon is going to help me out in average and generally be an across-the-board contributor. Gritchuk is going to be, you know, that high power, high RBI, RBI guy, but he's going to hurt me a little bit in average. And then Mullins is going to be the player who gives me a little bit of speed. And I'm hoping that, you know, those three players combined together can, you know, approximate like a bunch of guys who would contribute equally across all the categories. Now, it doesn't always work out like that, but that's the kind of mindset that I'm taking. And I think it sounds like you are, too. It's just the types of players that we target, you know, in those mid to late rounds is a little bit different. Um but yeah, I don't know. It's 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 fascinating. There, I don't think there's a right answer necessarily because if you pick the right players, you can win. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything else to add on this before we move on? No, I mean, I think I think it's just important to have a plan and know how you're going to address those categories that we mentioned are the most scarce ones before the draft starts. Because if you find yourself without a plan for how to tackle those, you're going to end up either chasing home runs with your Daniel Polkas, where you're you're destroying your batting average. Um, you know, and maybe some other categories like runs um, or, you know, just missing out on it. And so if your plan ahead of time is just to finish finish eighth in stolen bases because you don't have an overall, you're just trying to win your league, then identify where you can best meet those needs for stolen bases. But I think just realize that once you get outside um, maybe the top three rounds, that there are not going to be really like batting average and stolen base guys in the same way or those type of like five category contributors, it drops off pretty quickly. And so that's that would be my only advice to people as they think about how to address skills and, and batting average um, because, you know, it's it gets nasty out there. For sure. Let's get back to uh, just some general outfielder values that we like. And I want to dig a little deeper outside of the top 60 at the position. Who are some outfielders that you like or that you feel are, are good values where they're going? Um, outside of the top 60. So uh, I like the balanced. The generally I like the balanced approach. So you mentioned Cedric Mullins. He's a guy on the Orioles. I like he's another example of very good plate discipline, very good contact skills, little bit of power, little bit of speed. You know, he's projected for 13 home runs and 13 stolen bases. So that's not going to be anything crazy, but um, that works out well. Kevin Pillar is a certain type is the same type of player. I think they're virtually identical. I do like Pillar a little bit more just because I think um, he's done it before. Uh, and I think there's a little bit more power upside with Pillar on the Blue Jays. Uh, Shinsu Chu is a guy that I like a lot. He regularly returns uh, a lot of value. 
Adam Frazier, we talked about him at second base. Um, he's a guy that I like a lot. Uh, the last one that I'll say, I guess, is um, uh, well, the last two I'll say. Uh, number one is Abisail Garcia. He has outfield eligibility. He's going to be the the DH. Looks like a full time DH at least for most games uh, of the of the Tampa Bay Rays. It's a pretty good lineup. He's got really nice batted ball skills. He's in a better situation than he was in Chicago. He's going to have you know just a better team around him, and I think a better overall system in terms of the way that they prepare players. And he's supposed to bat cleanup in that lineup. So I like that a lot. He's a guy that I've been targeting late. And then a super late guy that I'm really interested in is Chad Pinder uh, of the Oakland A's. And he's always at the top of the leaderboards in terms of barrels for plate appearances. He's never gotten a full-time role. Uh, He's a platoon guy. He should get a full-time role to start the season with the injury to Nick Martini. He's also got middle infield and outfield eligibility. So he's a real nice guy to have on your bench because he can plug in in a few places. So he'd be a guy that I target just as somebody who makes really quality contact uh, in terms of batted balls. Yep, I love that Pinder call. If you were to compare him to his teammate, uh, Ramon Laureano, who we discussed earlier, those spring stats that I mentioned for Laureano, those 11 strikeouts and 33 at-bats, like Pinder's the the stark contrast to that. He only has one strikeout through his 31 at-bats in 12 spring training games. Uh, seven doubles compared to Laureano's four. Uh, they both have two homers. So it's interesting to kind of look at them and, and kind of say, well, man, it really seems like Pinder's the better hitter here, like the better pure hitter, like hit tool type of player. And I hope he finds the field. He's a guy I'm really excited to watch this year uh, when he gets out there. Uh, a few names for me. Uh, I love the Kevin Pillar call that you made. I think that him and Cole Calhoun and Brett Gardner, those like boring types of players are guys that I often find myself picking up near the end of drafts. I have like a really kind of gross fascination with Jason Hayward. Again, I I don't think you're getting anything fancy or good from him necessarily, but the playing time should be there. He has like a a really weird prospect pedigree that he's never delivered on, but who knows? Maybe like this year he can pop 20 homers and, and, you know, be kind of a a breakout from being undrafted or something. Uh, A couple other post type guys I'm interested in and, and not really paying up a whole lot for are Steven Souza and Jorge Soler. Uh, Souza does have some batting average liability, but he is only a couple seasons removed from 30 homers, 16 steals. Should play most of the time in Arizona, although that's a little cloudier now that they signed Adam Jones. Uh, Soler is just kind of in the same boat, like not super sexy, but you know the power should be there at the very least, and he should play every day for the Royals. I think those guys are all, you know, at least worth consideration in the later rounds, depending upon what types of players you need. Any deeper outfielder prospects you like, uh, guys who may not be guaranteed playing time right away, kind of like Pinder, or uh, even just like more prospecty type guys who are going to play? Um, uh, you know, one guy, one prospect that I, I'm more and more interested in is Kyle Tucker uh, of the Astros. Um, yeah. You know, he he's a really great prospect. He obviously struggled with some really bad luck, actually. Um, in terms of batted balls uh, la- uh, last year, you know, he only hit like 100 uh, something, but his uh, expected stats were a lot better. Um, so he's a guy, he already got demoted to the minor leagues, but I think talent is going to win out there uh, for him to get playing time. You know, you have guys like Tony Kemp ahead of him, uh, Josh Reddick, you know, guys who I wouldn't necessarily consider to be uh, the best players and so i think eventually his talent will win out and so if you are able to roster him and kind of hang on to him for a little bit his price is going to drop considerably in the coming weeks i think because 
uh, of him getting sent down uh, to the minors already. Um, so that's one guy. And then Eloy Jimenez is another guy, obviously, like he's going to have to pay for him. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, he, he's big time. But uh, the thing that I would say about Jimenez, I just drafted him the other day. When you look when you take a look at um, Jimenez's projection, what stands out to me is the batting average. Um, he's got a really nice uh, projected batting average. So 285, uh, which is very rare. In uh, only 543 plate appearances, it's 67 runs, 23 home runs, and 77 RBI. And I think the thing to remember there, especially in deeper leagues, is that he's either going to, whenever he comes up, you're going to have an opportunity to stick another outfielder in there for him, or the way that I would think about it, and I did when I drafted him in a 12-team draft the other day, is, you know, whatever player I get to have for those two, three weeks that he's not in, plus whatever he's going to give me for the remain the remainder of the year even boosts his value even further. So, you know, his ADP right now is around 119 which aligns with with uh, you know, with his value. And so when you tack on that other players contributions to those, let's say you get a guy like Cedric Mullins late and you add him in for the first 4 weeks of the season and then Eloy comes up, that's a really, really good player you're going to have combined. And I'd, I'd say people just like think creatively in that way about how you can kind of combine those profiles, create a really strong player there. But those are two guys that kind of leap out at me. Tyler O'Neill is another uh, really incredible skills in terms of power and speed, a really great barrels per plate appearance, really, really fast. Uh, the dude is, is totally built. Um, you know, whether he gets playing time or not in St. Louis, I'm not sure. But if you're in a shallower league, I think it's worth taking a gamble and rostering him for the first few weeks of the season because I don't think Dexter Fowler uh, is a huge uh, impediment if he's good enough. I also think that Harrison Bader is going to struggle. And then Jose Martinez is terrible in the outfield. So there's enough question marks there that I'd be willing to take a shot at O'Neill around pick 300 or so uh, and just hang on to him for a few weeks to see how things go. Yep, love it. Uh, a couple other names to consider. Uh, Lewis Brinson, who really struggled last year, but you know got some early spring hype. I haven't checked in on how he's doing since then. Uh, at the very least, he's interesting just because he's still young. And Alex Verdugo of the Dodgers, just again, kind of piggybacking off my Jock Peterson hate, like Verdugo could see playing time sooner rather than later. Um, I want to dig in a little bit deeper on Eloy Jimenez with you real quick, because we both have him ranked as our 34th outfielder. And some of the guys you have behind him in your rankings are guys I know that you like, uh, including Ryan Braun at 37, Jake Bowers at 38. Uh, you have A.J. Pollock at 35. I'm not a Pollock guy either, which is another reason I'm interested in Alex Verdugo. Uh, but long story short, like, are you really drafting Eloy ahead of guys like that, ahead of Bowers, ahead of Braun, players who I, I know you're interested in and that, you're li- that you like? Because... I mean, yes, you get that extra supplemental production from whoever you use to fill in for Eloy, but are, do you find yourself, you know, steering more towards the bankable guys who you know we're going to play from day one? Well, I think the the thing with Braun is that you know he uh, I'm not sure what his player appearances the last couple years are, but you know if you're banking on him for anything more than 500 plate appearances, I think you're you know let's see yeah 447 plate appearances last year 425 the year before that Good he point. hasn't hit 600, 600 plate appearances since 2012 so if i knew that i was going to get 600 plate appearances out of ryan braun he'd be up near the top of my list and i'm not i'm not even kidding like he'd be you know around yasiel puig probably but i don't think that that's going to happen and so um you know i'd say 
you know, 450 plate appearances from him. And then anything else is, is gravy. So that's why he's as low as he is. I love Jake Powers, but I'm also at least somewhat realistic on him. I like him because he's at, he's got first base and outfield eligibility. Um, and he's got power and speed, I think. And I just really love this, the underlying skills, but I don't think his batting average is going to be very good. And I think Eloy's is. And so I think that propels Eloy. Eloy's also, I mean, he's going to be a phenomenal hitter. Uh, I think he's been kind of overshadowed by Vlad Jr., but um, in his own right, he is going to be a, uh, a just incredible hitter, I think. And so I, the only reason why I have him as low as I do is because of you know, the questions around his playing time. Uh, but I would definitely take him uh, ahead of uh, all the guys that are uh, behind him right now for either playing time reasons or just because, um, you know, I don't think anybody behind him is as good of a hitter as he is right now. Yeah, good stuff. I just was curious about, you know, sometimes we put these rings together and they might not reflect how we would actually draft. And I think that often that shows up with injured guys and with guys who have questionable playing time. So uh, it's good to hear that you would draft Eloy in that spot ahead of those other players who you do like. And so I guess that also just shows how much you like Jimenez. Uh, let's get into starting pitcher. Um, just kind of top level stuff first. Do you target or avoid certain pitching staffs based upon projected team win totals or other kind of macro level projections like that? Um, yes and no. Um, I think it depends on where in the draft you're targeting them. So like a good example would be, you know, I give the Cleveland pitchers a little bit of a boost because they're pitching in the AL central and they're likely to get, you know, some better matchups than other teams. Um, you know, so that would be an example where I think about kind of the overall just quality of the pitcher and compared to who they're going up against. Whereas there are some pretty tough divisions like, you know, that the NL Central, I think, is going to be a bloodbath this year. Um, I also think that um, uh, the NL East has some pretty good teams in it uh, from top to bottom. Um, and so, you know, some of those some of those will factor into consideration. But like if you got a guy like Jacob deGrom, I'm not going to ding him at all because he's pitching in a good division, because I think overall, like really good pitchers are better than really good hitters. Um, you know, or, or or who they're going up against doesn't matter as much. You know, and that's what makes them really good. But like, you know, I I've targeted a lot of Marlins pitchers late. Actually, I really like Jose Ureña. I really like Sandy Alcantara. I really like um, Pablo Lopez. Is a guy that I've been looking at more and more. You know, and so I target them. But I target them at the end of my draft. I look at underlying skills of pitchers a lot: swinging strike rate, O swing, uh, in zone contact rate some batted ball metrics, first pitch strike rate, zone percentage to kind of get a sense of strikeout potential and their control metrics. And so I'm looking more at those things than I am at kind of the larger macro issues that you mentioned. Um, But, uh, you know, there are some instances where I might boost a player's value a little bit. Yeah, same here. I, I loosely think about it and try to pull starters from good teams when I can, just for the sake of them earning wins. But Ultimately, I like to prioritize the other skill-based production stats more. It is interesting, you know, where you are in the draft shouldn't should dictate this. Like you said, at the top of the draft, it shouldn't matter because those arms are so good in the first place that you don't care as much about matchups. I think it really is reflected in the middle of the draft where you might have a tendency to take someone on Houston instead of somebody on Chicago or something. The, the Chicago White Sox, I should say, or yeah. something along those lines. I like that you brought up those Marlins guys because you think about them and you're right. Like that's not necessarily the ideal 
type of team to target uh, in terms of trying to accumulate wins. But, you know, they play in a good park. Uh, there are some guys on that staff who are going to eat innings. Like a lot of those guys you listed have been some of my uh, late best ball targets, like uh, Urania especially. I've picked up Wei and Chen in a couple spots. So uh, I'm definitely down to script the bottom of the barrel with that type of pitcher late in drafts. Let's get into some specific players. Yusei Kikuchi, uh, he was not listed in the rankings that you sent me. Um, I'm assuming that was just like a minor oversight, but where do you think he belongs in terms of uh, starting pitcher ranks? Yeah, I just added him in right now. <laughs> I saw I looked at the question um, and I realized earlier that I didn't see him. For some reason, he is in my projections. Um, I, I would have him at 45 right now. I think in between Kyle Freeland and uh, Joey Lucchese is a pretty um, good place for him right there. You know, the, I think he's going to pitch well. Um, I think the challenge is that he is going to be on a six-day rotation. Um, that's one of the things that the Mariners promised him is that it would be like pan. I think he's also probably going to be on a pitch count uh, at least this year initially. And so I think that uh, limits the value a little bit. But I do think that there is upside. Um, I like the um, the deception that I've seen in his in his windup uh, reminds me a little bit of of Lucchese. Um, I think that's why he fits really nicely in between Freeland and Lucchese uh, for that reason. Um, so that's kind of where I have him. Uh, just one thing that I think you mentioned that that kind of got me thinking, too, is one thing that I do place a value on in terms of pitchers, like you mentioned, is kind of the pitching staff um, or the team that they pitch for in the sense that, you know, um, like the Astros, they know how to pitch. They use a lot of uh, – they were like the first team to adopt – um, you know, uh, Rapsodos and uh, Tronic cameras to really monitor their pitchers, and they understand pitching a lot better than other organizations. I think other organizations are catching up. So anytime they're interested in a guy or anytime a guy like Colin McHugh or Brad Peacock, you know, uh, has an opportunity to enter their rotation, I automatically, you know, kind of boost them up because I trust that organization a lot. Yeah, good call. Um, getting back to Kikuchi, I was listening to the Sleeper in the Bus podcast with uh, Justin Mason and Paul Sporer earlier today, the mm. second half of their starting pitcher preview, and Justin noted how uh, occasionally they're probably going to use him as an opener to keep his pitch count down, like you mentioned, and that's going to make him frustrating to own. But then in the same show, Justin was also talking up Brad Peacock, a guy you just mentioned, as a player that he loves. And I, I, I guess that's probably because Peacock is going to be cheaper than Kikuchi in most drafts. But I think that their situational usage is going to be pretty similar. And so I, I don't think I want to ding Kikuchi too much for that. And uh, in terms of ranking, I have him right around where you do. He's my SP43, um, right around Lucchese, kind of that same zone. So uh, you and I are pretty... Uh, connected there on this particular evaluation but how about Michael Waka uh, he's another guy who didn't show up in your rankings and this isn't one that I assumed you missed necessarily he could also have just been outside your top uh, 100 starters or whatever you sent me uh, what, what do you think about Waka uh, this season and uh, are you drafting him at all yeah I mean the one thing that kind of piques my interest a little bit about Waka this spring is that his velocity I believe is way up um, and so that gives me a little bit of interest uh, I've actually owned Waka the last two years in some capacity. And I just, each year you kind of get your hopes up. And at this point in time, like he kind of is what he is, I think, until he shows something else. He didn't show particularly good skills last year. Um, uh, you know, like strikeout skills. He got lucky on balls in play. And then he got injury injured, which has been a hit, you know, kind of historical for him. Last three years, 138, 165, 84 innings pit. You know, the ERA was solid last year, but 
The FIP was at 422. He had a 249 BABIP. You know, so things like that. Swinging strike rate below league average for the last four years. O-swing below league average for the last three. So there's just really not the underlying skills that get me super interested in his profile. And so at this point, I'm just kind of like, you know, show me that I need to roster you. Um, until then, you know, you're not going to be on my roster. Okay, so he really is just off your board at this point. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about some other big differences we have, because I have Waka inside my top 60 starters, I think. Like, I'm I'm okay with what he is, and I think that's part of why I guess I I, I don't mind him. But I, I am probably a little higher than most, uh, maybe, maybe too high, but uh, we'll see. I, I think I drafted him in Barf, but after that I haven't picked up any shares yet. Uh, I, I don't know. It's it's He's an interesting player in that regard, where I don't know exactly how to put my finger on him, but I'm, I'm interested in drafting him if the price is right. Uh, anyway, other big differences. Uh, let's start up near the top. Steven Strasburg. I am still paying for the talent here, even though he burned me last season. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's, it's interesting that I'm higher on these pricey, high strikeout guys with innings concerns, like Strasburg, uh, likes James Paxton, like James Paxton, who I'm also higher on than you are. But if we go lower down the rankings, uh, I'm I'm lower on the cheaper version of that pitcher with Rich Hill. So I, it actually, when I saw that, it made me move Hill up as a result because I have to acknowledge that the, the concerns between those three players are all pretty similar. So if I'm ranking Strasburg and Paxton as high as I am, Rich Hill needs to be closer to them. But um, yeah, what, what do you think about Strasburg? Uh, is it just a, a playing time concern with him? Or do you have any other, are, are there any other red flags for him with you? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a combination of both for me with Strasburg. I think number one is obviously the innings, um, you know, and, and and every single year it's a DL stint. You know, he's not necessarily giving you the volume that I want from a guy that I'm going to draft in, you know, the 50, 60 uh, range uh, in drafts right now. And I'm also a little bit worried about the skills. They seem to be kind of slowly on the decline. Um you know, his K percentage is down, you know, for uh, two straight years. Uh, the swinging strike rate isn't uh, has only been at 12 percent once in the last five. Uh, first pitch strike rate was down last year. The zone percentage was down seven percent. You know, so the control metrics aren't necessarily as strong as they've been in the past. Um, you know, and so I just think overall, like I think there's a little bit of we're starting to see him. You know, he's 30 years old now. We're starting to see a little bit of the wear and tear from all of these injuries on just the performance overall and, and the underlying metrics. I know his velocity, I think, is down uh, this spring as well. I think he was like 92, 93. So that vol- the velocity, that 99-mile-per-hour fastball, is kind of a little bit of a thing of the past for him. And even when you look at the last few years, I mean, the last, you know, uh, three of the last four years, he's got – an ERA of three, four, six or above, which, you know, that's not bad. Three, four, six, a three, six, a three, seven, four. That's not bad. But again, like going back to like you mentioned, Rich Hill, you know, Rich Hill's ERA is right around there too. And he's got the same innings limitations, but, um, you know, like you don't have to pay the same price necessarily. Um, and even the strikeouts, you know, like as the rest of the league has seen an increase in, you know, K per nine, his is solid at like 10. But it's never really gotten jumped into that elite range. So I think at this point in his career, the innings pitch is enough to scare me away, considering that the skills are no longer that overwhelming. Yeah, fair enough. And 
Com- compare him to Paxton, if you don't mind, like, because you have Paxton four spots higher in your rankings, but I feel like a lot of the times you might see Strasburg drafted ahead of Paxton. How do you see them usually falling off the board uh, in your drafts, and do you think that that's correct? Yeah, um, you know, I think Paxton is going earlier. I think part of it is the Yankee issue, at least with the wins. Sure. Um, the major difference for me and the reason why I have Paxton ahead of him is that Paxton's skills are truly elite. I mean, the swinging strike rate is at 14.3% last year, so about 3% better than Strasburg's was. Uh, the K-minus rock rate was at 25.7%. Um, he's He pumps in the first pitch strikes. He's in the zone, uh, uh, poor Z contact, really high O swing. Uh, you know, the whip has been 1-1 the last two years. Last year, he got a little bit of unlucky on balls in play with a 3.76, although I am a bit concerned about the the home runs in Yankee Stadium. So I actually have him lower than I think most people do um, on uh, on my rankings. Um, and that's because I don't like him moving to the Yankees. I just think, like, it just, it's just not a good ballpark uh, for him to go into. Um, and so – and then the innings aren't going to be there. I just don't think you can bank on the innings. His max is 160 from last year. So for those reasons, you know, um, I think he has better skills than Strasburg, but I also worry about the innings and I worry about – him pitching in Yankee Stadium. Okay, so from that archetype of kind of high K rate, low innings uh, starter to a you know high K rate whip killer uh, archetype, I want to talk about Chris Archer and Robbie Ray. And yeah. to me, these players are very similar. I have them ranked very similarly. Uh, they're they're going to give you the strikeouts. It seems like they're pretty reliable in terms of innings pitched. So I'm curious why you're so much lower on Archer than you are on Robbie Ray. Uh, for reference. You have Archer all the way down at starting pitcher 50, but you have Robbie Ray up at starting pitcher 35. What's the difference to you between those two players? Yeah, well, um, number one, I mean, I think Archer, we know who Archer is. I mean, three consecutive years of an ERA of, you know, four or above, and then a whip of 1.24 of a, or above. And so the strikeouts are nice, but anytime I've got a guy that I think is going to have an ERA over four, uh, I don't necessarily want him on my team, especially, you know, at the price where Archer is going. You know, he's a two-pitch pitcher with the slider, you know, and, and he hasn't been able to develop a third pitch to really make him, you know, a better pitcher. And so I just don't like those high whip, high ERA guys, even if they're going to give me the strikeouts in Archer's case. You know, Ray, the bigger concern for me, and, and I'm not drafting him in any drafts really either, like I'm, uh, I like him more than Archer, uh, but he is not. Um, you know, I'm probably not going to have many drafts either because I think I'm lower on him than a lot of guys are. I think the strikeout upside is um, uh, uh, for Ray is, um, you know, is is better. I mean, the the, the strikeout skills are better. Um, I think he's been able to maintain a, a BABIP from opposing players, uh, of opposing pitchers under league average for two consecutive years. So the issue with Ray for me is less about um, who he is as a pitcher because he has multiple pitches that he throws successfully. It's much more about the control metrics. I don't think he's going to have a 13% walk rate um, again. I think that was, you know, incredibly um, high uh, for even for him, but I do worry like he's a, he's a whip killer. And so, um, you know, those generally aren't guys that are going to end up on my teams. 
Um, although, you know, you look at the 2017 that Ray had and it just makes mouth water, but you know, I think he was pretty fortunate that year. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree. I think that both these guys are, are definitely risky for what they can do to your ERA and to your whip with Archer. You're getting a little bit more bankability in terms of innings. Like I, I, I thought the Ray was a little bit more consistent, but if I look back at his past few seasons, uh, his innings have bounced around a little bit, 123 last year. 162 the year before that, 174, and then 127. One silver lining with Ray is that he's 27 compared to Archer at 30 years old. So you are right to have Robbie Ray higher. I prefer him slightly as well. Uh, It's not as drastic, but I am willing to draft this type of player, but it it is more kind of an acknowledgement of me not paying up for pitching at the top of drafts uh, as often as you are. And we we discussed that on the last show, but... um, and again, I'm, I'm definitely coming at this from a mindset of winning one league as opposed to winning an overall, and that's why I'm a little bit more comfortable ranking these guys and drafting these guys at price, and generally more aggressively. Let's move on, though. Uh, Herman Marquez, starting pitcher 17 for you. Uh, no fear of Coors Field with Marquez? Um, not really. Um, you know, I actually think I've moved him up in my rankings um, since I initially ranked him, I have him as my 14th starting pitcher right now behind Mike Clevenger in front of Patrick Corbin. You know, the more I think about it, like the more I love Marquez, I don't think, you know, I think there's been a lot of comparisons. There's been like John Gray comparisons. I think there's been uh, Ubaldo Jimenez comparisons. I don't think the Rockies have ever seen a pitcher who has the same type of skills um, that Marquez has. Um, you know, towards the end of last season, um, his swinging strike rate in the second half, a full second half of the season was over 18%, over 18% swinging strike rate. That's really good for an elite closer. He had two pitches last year with over 20% swinging strike rates in the curve and the slider. Um, and those were newer pitches for him. And so I think that's what helped to make the leap. Um, there's been some good comments on Twitter. Uh, Max Freeze has talked about Marquez and how he worked his fastball up in the zone more in the second half as well. And so that combined with the slider curve combo was really excellent. And so, you know, he gives up more ground balls. I think he's definitely more susceptible and there's some risk involved because he does pitch at Coors. But I don't think that Coors has ever seen that the type of pitcher that Marquez is. And for that reason, I'm willing you know, to put him uh, way up there on my rankings. What I would say in saying that is, you know, in my projections, a- after you get past, uh, you know, like Carlos Carrasco, all of the pitchers in that kind of middle tier are pretty much bad values. Um, when when I take a look at what their projections are um, and compare them to, uh, you know, what they're supposed to contribute. So, like, after even... Um, you know, Garrett Cole, really, you know, they're all losing you four or five dollars um, outside of maybe, um, you know, a couple like Paxton uh, earns you two dollars. Barrios earns you one dollar. But a lot of these guys, you know, don't look like good investments. Um, you know, that may not necessarily be the case because I like some of them above projections. But generally speaking, in draft, I'm trying to bypass this whole group of folks. But if I were to take um, a pitcher kind of in this group of 50 to 100 guys, um, Marquez would probably be the guy um, that I would go with. And, and to be clear, when you say that they're losing you value, you mean relative to ADP, like the slot yeah. that they're going in ADP versus the 
dollar amount they project to return is wrong. So just because, you know, uh, one of the pitchers in that group is, uh, you know, a loss at ADP, if that guy falls 10 picks below ADP, then he might be a value all of a sudden. So that's where, you know, again, rankings are fallible. You, if you're doing yep. a draft and you see that a, a player, you know, should have been drafted, quote unquote, but isn't like, uh, Madison Bumgarner fell down the draft board relative to ADP in my uh, TGFBI draft and like that sort of stuff. Even if you don't like Bumgarner, like at some point they become enough of a value that you can pounce and have it, you know, return something for you. Um, so just just a quick clarification on that. I like that you brought up the comparison to John Gray, and he's a guy who you are much much lower on, despite the fact that he also strikes out a lot of guys. He actually maintained a pretty good strikeout rate through his Rocky 2018 season. Uh, you know, FIP, XFIP, uh, those sorts of metrics seem to indicate that John Gray was a little unlucky. And so it can't just be Coors Field causing concerns with Gray in your ranking because, you know, you like Marquez despite Coors Field. What, why are you down on Gray? Like, what don't you like about his profile? Is it that he's allowing harder contact? You know, that rising home run rate last year that we saw? Like, why are you down on Gray? What people get wrong about John Gray, from my perspective, right, and uh, not trying to be a, a jerk, is that I don't think John Gray's problem is Coors Field. If you look at his splits, um, um, I'll get them up, and maybe I'll embarrass myself because they'll be wrong. Um, his BABIP at home uh, is 329, and his BABIP away from home uh, is 324. Uh, he actually has a better K-minus walk rate at home than he does away. John Gray's problem is his batted ball quality. It's very similar to Chris Archer. Um, his fastball is just not good enough. It doesn't play uh, in the majors right now. Like that could always change. His velocity is up um, a little bit this year, but his fastball is a terrible pitch. And so unless he is is getting away with his fastball, then um, you know he's going to get going to get absolutely crushed. His fastball last year. Um, had a WRC plus against uh, of 158, which means that uh, batters were 58% better than league average against his fastball. He gave up a WOBA of 405. Uh, his Babbitt was 349 against on his four-seam fastball. Uh, the last three years, on the Babbitt on that four-seam, 349, 359, 343, 381. So it's just a situation where his fastball is not a good pitch, and the slider, you know, maybe even the curve is is a good pitch too, uh, but folks just uh, go to town on that forcing. So maybe he can make a change and throw that slider and that curveball more. Maybe he can get a little bit of more velocity on his forcing. I do like the fact that he's going later in drafts. Like he's always gets pushed up because you know people look at the K minus walk rate. But there's a group of guys like Don Gray, Chris Archer, Nick Pavetta. Uh, Shane Bieber, all those guys who, if you look at the, the, the skills that you generally would look at, like K minus walk rate, swinging strike rate, it all looks really, really good, but they give up way too good of contact and it's not bad luck. When you look at the expected metrics, they also support the fact that they're giving up, uh, really high Babbitt's in like the 320s plus, um, same thing with home runs. And so those are guys that I stay away with, be, stay away from because you look at them and you're like, man, this guy has really good skills. It, regression is coming. Regression is coming. Regression is coming. But if you've stuck with John Gray and waited for regression to come, you've had a 461 ERA in 2016 and a 512 ERA in 2018 uh, with whips of 126 and 135. 
And so that is too steep of a price to pay for investing in skills without taking a look at that in quality. Fair enough. Um, we might as well finish out the triumvirate of Rockies pitchers here. And I want to get your temperature on Kyle Freeland just real quick. Like, would you rather draft him than John Gray? Just quick answer. Uh, yes. Okay. How is that for a quick answer? I can do it. It's, it can be done. We got there. Um, all right, let's move over to the AL. I want to talk about Nathan Eovaldi, and his situation still seems good. I mean, by your ranking, it seems like you don't think he can keep stride with what he did last year. Is it just fear of paying for a career year? Because it, it does seem like he is a, a relatively likely regression candidate in his own right, but I don't know, like starting pitcher 69 in your rankings, uh, while, while that's nice, it seems too low uh, for me when I when I see your ranking of Eovaldi. Um, what, why are you so down on him? Well, I mean, I think Eovaldi is a case, like, again, at least from my perspective, um, of a guy who, you know, had a, had a, had a good season. Um, he was fine. Um, he wasn't anything special, but he was on the Red Sox and he pitched the, you know, the end of the season and he did a great job. And like, I give him all the credit in the world for that. Like his performance in, uh, in the World Series, um, in whichever game that was, game four or game three was absolutely incredible. But let's take a look at the line. The ERA is a 381. The whip is a 113. Uh, in 111 innings pitched, and his Ks per nine was at 8.19. His swinging strike rate was at 10.7%, so slightly better than league average. His K-minus walk rate was solid at 17.8%, but his walk percentage was at 4.4%, which doesn't necessarily, you know, I think reflect the fact that his first pitch strike rate was only slightly better than league average, and his zone percentage was was much better than league average, but... Um, you know, the walk, one of the reasons why I think the walk percentage is so low, um, is the fact that he, you know, that people make so much contact, uh, on pitches that he throws, uh, in the zone. He's worse than league average. You take a look at his strand rate. It was at 67.3%, which is well, um, uh, below league average, which points to some regression. Um, and then when you look at his batted balls, uh, Eovaldi last year got pretty lucky. He had an expected BABIP of 318, despite a 288 BABIP overall, um, and an expected WOBA of 304, which is slightly better than league average. So all that says to me is he's a he's a pitcher, he's a mediocre pitcher on a good team who may get who may run himself into wins, but is really bad the third time through the order, so isn't going to give you a ton of innings pitched. And I just don't want to pay for that type of a, of a profile. I'd much rather go higher upside, higher skills. Uh, and take a little bit more risk than going after that. And I think there's sizable risk given his injury history. Yeah, fair enough. And you're right about the walk rate too. Like not only is he allowing a lot of hits, but even that 4.4% walk rate that he had in 2018 is well below what he was doing in previous seasons. Like he was usually hovering around like seven to 8%. So it seems like he got a little lucky and is due for some regression with the walks as well. And so that'll you know help raise the whip. I don't know though, like this is the type of pitcher who, like you said, you could back into some wins here. I'm okay chasing that to some extent because wins are a fluky category. We talked about that earlier. Like in the middle, if I'm breaking ties in favor of like one mediocre pitcher or another, like I might be likely to take Eovaldi because he pitches for the Red Sox. And that might be part of why I have him, you know, ranked slightly higher than you. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, let's move over to the Cubs, John Lester. And I, I'll admit, like I'm probably a little bit too high on this old man. I'm probably just giving a little bit too much credit to him for 
the relatively stable and predictable innings pitch volume that he's delivered, you know, over the past few years. I, I guess this kind of raises a, a larger, more nebulous question. How do you, Toby, find balance between quality innings and, you know, enough innings to make sure that you're getting strikeouts, getting wins and all that? Yeah, I, I lean heavily towards the quality of innings uh, versus the volume of innings. I think that's one of the reasons why in the in the first episode we talked about kind of going with the two aces approach. One of the reasons why I really like that is is that you're getting the volume and the quality. And so later down in the draft, you cannot get the volume with the quality unless you kind of strike it rich on a pitcher. Um, and I think that's those are going to be a lot of the people that win win their leagues is the guys who who pick correctly in terms of, you know, drafting uh, the the right guy from that middle tier who takes that next step. Uh, you know, although the research tells us that we're not super good at um, as a market of identifying who exactly um, that is going to be. Uh, with Lester, I think the challenge with Lester is like, you know, you look at his whip the last two years, 132, 131. He got super lucky last year. There was a ton of press about, you know, how lucky he was with the 3.32 ERA. He has the 4.39, you know, FIP. Uh, the XFIP was at 4.43. Uh, the Sierra was at 4.57. So all of those are, are pointing to the fact that, you know, he's going to be worse, that he should have been worse. And when you look at his career average, you know, the ERA and the FIP line up pretty closely. Um, the ERA and the, uh, and the XFIP line up pretty closely. He does slightly better than them, but not to like a full run better than them. So I think that regression is coming. The strikeouts have dried up 7.38 A per nine. Uh, the control metrics are bad. Um, he's about five, 4% uh, worse than league average at getting ahead of hitters. His zone percentage is 3% below league average. Uh, his swinging strike rate is one and a half percent below league average. K minus walk rate is 3% below league average. His in zone contact rate is two and a half worse than league average. His out swing is 4% worse than the average. You know, every single skill imaginable points to the fact that he's a really bad pitcher. Uh, we just didn't necessarily see that reflected in the ERA. We saw that everywhere else in his profile, but we didn't see that reflected in his ERA last year. Let's talk about Matt Harvey and. I, I thought I was a Harvey truther. Like I've been drafting him all over the place. Like I took him in TGFBI. I've taken him in all these best balls. And then I looked at your ranking and you have him 24 spots higher than me. So I, I'm just going to let you go. Explain what's to like about Matt Harvey this season. Yeah. So uh, what I like about Matt Harvey first and foremost is his ADP. Um, it's yeah. around three, it's around 340. So it's really a free pick, if you will. The thing that I really like about Harvey is if you look at his last 10 games of last year, uh, you saw some really nice improvement um, in some of the metrics. So his swinging strike rate was up close to, it was, I think, a little over 11%. Um, his O swing also made a big jump um, uh, into better than league average. His first pitch strike rate made a really big jump, as did his zone percentage, and folks started making less contact on pitches inside the zone. Now, what I really liked about Harper when I dug in is the fact that his curveball got much better towards the end of the year. So his curveball in August and um, uh, in August and uh, September, uh, the swinging strike rate on that curveball, which he hadn't used throughout the full year, and was a key part of his success when he used to be really good. The swinging strike rate on it jumped to about 15% in August, and then uh, well over 20% um, in September. And so I think the combination of the fact that uh, you know one of his better pitches when he was 
you know, really good with the Mets, um, seemed to be kind of showing up after a long time away, um, was a really good indication. Um, his, uh, fastball velocity is still pretty good. You know, he sits like 94. Um, so it's not like elite like it used to be, but it's still pretty solid. Um, and, and so the combination of those two things and just the overall improvement in both control metrics and strikeout skills, um, made me, you know, feel like he's a good guy to go after because if I pick him up and, you know, he struggles not just in the outcomes, but also in the skills in his first few starts, then, you know, I have no problem just, you know, just cutting him because of the price that I paid for him. Um, but I think, you know, anytime you see those types of skills, the combination of nice strikeout skills and control metrics, you know, I'm, I'm always willing to take a shot on somebody. And so Matt Harvey's definitely somebody I'm targeting this year. Yeah, totally. The, pr- the price is right, and that's really the, the main appeal. I mean, it seems like his role is locked in there with the Angels, so I, I totally agree. Like, there's no harm in picking him, so why not? Um, another guy who's going pretty late is uh, the veteran CC Sabathia, and at this point, I, I just look at a player like that, and it's, I, I mean, I'm okay with boring and unsexy players, and Sabathia does still pitch for the Yankees. There's that sort of appeal in terms of, you know, win probability and stuff like that. But I, he's just not the type of player that I'm going to draft. And you have him ranked significantly higher than me. Is it because of that win potential? Is there something else I'm missing? Like, because I just, I look at him and I expect him to be right around replacement level for the most part. Do you agree, disagree with that assessment? And you're just in because he's free, essentially. Um, what do you think about Sabathia? Yeah, you know, one of the things Sabathia really caught me by surprise as I was looking over, um, you know, kind of end of the season, second half, uh, slash like last 30 day skill metrics. So, you know, Sabathia, uh, increased his, uh, cutter usage, uh, throughout 2018. That was kind of the primary pitch that he went to, uh, overall in 2018. Um, he threw at 42.3% of pitches. Um, and, uh, that increased to 48.3% of his pitches in his last games. The cutter had a 93 WRC plus. So essentially, uh, hitters were batting worse than league average against it. A 290 Wobo, which is also worse than league average. An 11.1% swinging strike rate, which is about, you know, half a percent, uh, better than league average. And then a 33.3% O swing, which is about 3% better than league average. So the skills were really nice on those pitch. When you look at his overall, skills over his last 10 games his swinging strike rate was at 11.8 percent about one and a half percent better than league average uh, for starting pitchers his in zone contact rate was 84.3 percent which is one percent better than league average his o swing was three percent better than league average his first strike rate was two percent better than league average and then his strikeout percentage was about and a half percent better than league average so i never thought of sabathia as a guy you know who struck out Kind of guys, and he does. He still doesn't strike out a bunch of guys, but he actually has some skills that support, you know, the fact that he was a pretty good pitcher um, in 2018. And so I think that combined with the fact that he's pitching for the Yankees, um, you know, and the win potential there makes him uh, pretty interesting. And so you know, that's the reason why I'm kind of willing to take a shot at him again like he's going very late in drafts as well and i have a little bit of concerns because he's going to start the year i think on the injured list you know outside of that like i think there's some really interesting things going on there with sabathia and that his cutter is really helping his repertoire as he kind of fades away into retirement after this year 
Yeah, I feel like we talked about this enough on the last show, but I should probably bring it up again. Uh, I think our discussion centered around Luke Voigt, who happens to be a teammate of CC Sabathia, and how you're referencing these kind of end of the year stats and how they come during a, a portion of the season where rosters are often diluted. And I'm wondering if it's a coincidence that both Sabathia and Luke Voigt happened to perform well down the stretch and, and maybe they played like just a bunch of soft teams. Um, I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just mm-hmm. speculating that maybe that could have happened. I mean, and you were referencing the same thing with Matt Harvey and his curveball. That seems a little bit more trustable to me because it's, you know, very pitch specific, but that is kind of a grain of salt I want to throw at you in terms of looking at these end of year statistics or, or, or like kind of isolating just that one portion of these players' performances. But uh, if you want like kind of a deeper dive into why you know toby doesn't expect that to be as big of a deal with luke voigt uh go and listen to the last episode uh let's get back to pitchers though give me uh one or two of your favorite values outside of the top 50 starters um so uh there's actually a lot of them uh so um brad peacock is my is pitcher 51 for me you know it looks like he's gonna have a starting spot in houston and i think that gives him a ton of value you're not gonna get a lot of innings pitched but the last time he was a starter um, for most of the season, he was he was incredibly valuable uh, two years ago. So that's just something of note. Uh, Annabelle Sanchez is my number fifty-two pitcher. You know he did really well last year. I expect some regression in the in the ERA um, and and in the WHIP a little bit, but he had really nice strikeout still skills, had decent control metrics last year, and a and a one of the best changeups in the league. So I like Annabelle Sanchez a lot. I also like Tyler Skaggs. He was good for most of the season and then kind of blew up after he returned from injury. We forget how good he was. I also like one of the things that I like about the Angels, too, is they've kind of bought in hard on analytics. They've hired a bunch of guys from Driveline, and, and I'm a huge fan of Drivelines, and I'm a huge fan of the work that they do and that they've done with certain players like Trevor Bauer. And so um, I really like that about some of the Angels guys. And Skaggs is somebody who is quoted as saying um, how valuable it's been to have the additional information from the Rapsodo and Edgetronic machines. I'm really interested to see how his kind of curveball and and fastball combo uh, benefit from that. I also like Steve Matz a lot. His skills towards the end of last year were really, really good. Um, And it's hard to, it's easy to forget, but two years ago, you know, before uh, he was sidelined by a couple injuries, you know, he was a guy who you could rely on for a mid threes ERA with about a strikeout an inning. And he was kind of an up-and-coming pitcher, and I think he may be getting back to being close to that. I also like Reynaldo Lopez, who's my pitcher number 55. Uh, he had a really nice September, and again, like you mentioned, like you know, one of the things is as you look at pitchers around here, you're never going to get a guy going this late that's like a sure thing, right? And so there's always going to be some reason why they may not be good, but I like to look for the reasons why they could be good. And Lopez had an absolutely dominant September, um, which included a, a real bump in the uh, swinging strike rate on his changeup. You know, he's got kind of a changeup slider, and his fastball is one of the fastest in baseball. Uh, it regularly uh, sits at 96-plus and gets 99. And so, you know, that combination of vo- velocity and secondary stuff is really intriguing to me. Al Gibson is always a guy that I like a lot going at 59. Um, he's actually got uh, three pitches, I think, with a swinging strike rate above 15%. His major issue has always just been his control metrics aren't that good. Michael Pineda coming back from um, uh, Tommy John has looked really good in spring training. His velocity is at 95, 96. The Twins have also revamped their 
program. They hired a bunch of guys from college, and college is actually where it's at right now in terms of pitching development. Interested to see what they do there. But he's in a much better ballpark than he was uh, with the Yankees, where he had a lot of home run troubles. He's another one of these high bat-up guys, and so he's got to develop a third pitch. But he's at least intriguing going where he's going right now. And you don't have to pay the price that you do with like Archer or Meta or one of those guys. Um, other guys, I really had a lot of hope for Andrew Heaney, but they just shut him down. So, um, you know, I'm not into him. Matt Boyd is another interesting name. Uh, Mike Miner is a guy that I'm really interested in. His velocity increased as the year went on last year. It got all the way up to 94. He's got a devastating uh, changeup that has a 20% plus swinging strike rate all throughout the second half last year that he started to throw more. He gives up a lot of fly balls, which can be bad news for home runs, but it's really nice for whips. And so I think if you're looking for a guy to get late where his ERA might not be great, but I think he'll have a solid whip. I think Mike Miner is uh, is that guy. I think Jeff Samarja has increased velocity this uh, spring, which is really intriguing. Um, Trevor Richards has a devastating changeup and have really nice skills towards the end of last year. Matt Strom uh, has been well-documented. He's a guy that I think is really good. And then um, I could go on forever on these guys. The last ones that I'll mention are Jose Ureña, who's uh, who's among the league leaders in velocity, started throwing his slider more towards the end of last year and looked pretty dominant in September. September, uh, caveats applying, obviously. And then Yanni Chirinos is up to 97 this spring. He's going to be benefiting from the opener in Tampa Bay. And so he may you may be able to vulture some wins from that scenario. Uh, and then the last guy I'll mention is Jason Vargas of the Mets. Uh, his skills were also really nice towards the end of last year. Had a really nice changeup. He faded his sinker uh, towards the end of last year. I think he might have either introduced a cutter or thrown his four seam. Uh, and he looked a lot better there. And so there's a bunch of guys that I like going late. And it's just a matter of kind of who falls who falls into my lap at that point in time. How about you? Who are, yeah, yeah. who are some guys that you're looking at, Layden? Yeah, you're totally right about the the nature of starting pitchers at that point in the draft. Like, you're not going to get anybody who's perfect. Like, everybody's going to have some sort of wart, whether it be, you know, playing time or whip or ERA or not striking out enough guys. But I think with that in mind, what I'm really looking for are two different types of pitchers. I'm looking for guys who seem to have locked-in roles that are going to lead to innings. So I think Mats, Kyle Gibson, Samarzaja, um, guys like Mike Fires kind of fall under that. And, like, I definitely prefer to target those types of players the deeper my league is. Like, I want to make sure that I'm getting the innings at the very least uh, to rack up strikeouts, to rack up opportunity for wins and quality starts. Uh, so that comes into play, like, for my deeper formats and for, like, best ball in particular in, like, shallower formats and kind of more fun leagues or like one-off leagues i'm more likely to kind of chase breakout players or, or potential breakout players like you mentioned matt strom i think that's a good call uh jesus lazardo on the a's like when he gets called up he could be really good uh domingo Herman on the yankees is intriguing to me like he was pretty up and down last year when he was in the majors but it seems like there's a lot of potential there and you know the injury to sabathia um some other issues there with the the staff in new york could get german or herman a um a, a starting rotation spot and so I, i'm interested in him uh jake junis on the royals and i, I would echo just a, a lot of the other names you threw out there uh I, I like that you brought up the improvements that the angels have made to 
you know, their kind of uh, approach to developing pitchers. Uh, that gives me hope for Matt Harvey, for Tyler Skaggs, even for Trevor Cahill, who I've talked up on the show before. Cahill had some flashes last season. I'm, I've been drafting him a fair amount, too. I'm interested to see if he can kind of continue to put it together. Um, but, yeah, th- there really are just a lot of options down there. And for me, I think it really comes down to balancing either, you know, the upside for a breakout or just a locked-in role. And I think that's kind of the way that I like to approach it when I get late into the draft. Those are some great guys you mentioned right there. I like a lot of those guys, too. Cool. Uh, let's move over to relief pitcher. Not going to spend as much time on this or on catcher, uh, but big differences. Uh, up top, Aroldis Chapman. I feel like he's still capable of contributing you know, beyond what most relievers can do in terms of the strikeouts that he provides and the ratios that he's going to give you. Yes, I understand there are some injury concerns, but I, I was surprised to see you have him outside your top 10 relievers. Uh, h- how do you back that up? So uh, there's a few things going on with Chapman that worry me a lot. Like, number one, his velocity has been down considerably this spring. I think he's been like, you know, sitting kind of 94, 95 and peaking at 97. And that's a huge, huge difference uh, for him. And so that's one of the things that I'm really concerned about. Uh, when you look at his swinging strike rate uh, over the last over his last 15 games last year, all of the metrics pretty much fell. Uh, his swinging strike rate dropped to 12.4 percent, which is which is good, but it's not elite for a closer. His control metrics were awful. His O swing was at 25.5 percent, so about five percent worse than league average. His first pitch strike rate was at 51.6 percent, like nine percent below league average. And then his zone percentage was about seven percent below league average. And so all of that just combined to make him. I mean, those are just horrendous control metrics. If he were to have those for a full year you'd be looking at like a 15% plus uh, walk rate. His velocity was also down at the end of last year, down to uh, Mm 98.3 miles per hour. Um, And that's still pretty fast, but that's a three-year low for him. And so all of those things combined to tell me, you know, number one, there's some sort of injury uh, inhibiting him, uh, or number two, um, you know, and I think that's probably the most likely thing. He had a knee injury last year. Um, you know, that sidelined him for a little bit. And so that it may be a result of that The fact that his velocity has actually been down and hasn't rebounded in spring training uh, raises enough concerns for me. And there's too good of a bullpen behind him uh, to really be investing in, in, in him uh, this year for me. You know, and I may look foolish for doing that at the at the uh, at the end of this year. But there's just too many kind of yellow slash red flags for me. For sure. I mean, let's talk about one of his teammates there in that bullpen, Dellen Batansis. And we, we don't differ on him very much in our rankings. We're only off by like three or four spots, if I remember correctly. But like, do you think that these sorts of non-closer relief pitchers are ever worth the asking price in drafts? Because every year there's like a couple of these guys who end up higher in ADP, higher in rankings, mostly I think based on name brand, because in this case, probably because they're Yankees, uh, like Patances and Chad Green and maybe now Adam Adovino. But I, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's not worth taking these guys where they go in drafts. I think it's easier just to go the cheap route. Uh, I feel like you can find cheaper gems kind of in this spectrum of players in season if you really need to, let alone in the draft. Like, how do you approach this type of relief pitcher? Yeah. No, I think it's. I think it really depends on your league. If you play in K per nine leagues you know, with like innings pitch limits or um, just K per nine leagues, I think that they can be really, really valuable. I mean, if you look at Batansis, he's got 
you know, he has over a hundred strikeouts in five consecutive years. His K per nine the last three years is better than 15% or 15 Ks per nine. But most people don't play in that format. If you play in a regular league, he's actually fallen further than I think he has in previous years. I think he's in like two twenties or two thirties right now. Him and uh, Andrew Miller of uh, the Cardinals are going in kind of a similar range and they're similar to kind of their, your Josh Hader types of guys. You know, if I'm in an overall competition, I have a really hard time getting these guys because I can't give up the volume of strikeouts, um, you know, and wins and compete, you know, for the overall in all of those categories. So in that type of situation, I wouldn't be rostering them as much. If I'm in a single league, though, you know, what I do think they bring value into the equation for is if you can get them and, you know, let's say you're streaming your pitchers, you know, week to week. Um, they can be the type of guy that you insert into your uh, lineup if there's a bad matchup for one or two of your pitchers, you know, so that you you theoretically get the good ratios and and you don't lose out on too many strikeouts, but you're not you're you're able to avoid those type of risky uh, matchups. And so those are those are the types of situations that I would look at getting guys like this. But you know, like we've discussed previously, like I don't find myself getting them in most drafts, and so. You know, that's kind of more theory than than something that I put in practice that often. Yeah, and I think that's more indicative of how you approach starting pitcher, too. Like, if you're drafting two aces up at the top of your draft, you don't necessarily need a guy like this to help patch your ratios together. Whereas if you're like me and you draft your starters in, like, the third to sixth round uh, instead of the, the first three to four rounds, then maybe you need that help from a reliever. And I, I'm I'm interested in owning these guys. I just think often it's the case where they are too expensive to actually take where they're going because typically if the relief pitchers that you get, you need them to contribute in saves, at least in some capacity. And Batances will give you a few, but probably not enough to justify being drafted over some of the other guys who ha- are like safer bets to be, you know, full on closers or, you know, even part time closers, like half half time closers. But yeah, that, that's kind of how I view it. I think that if you pay down for starting pitching, it's more likely you'd be interested in a, you know, an elite ratio reliever like this. But let's talk about Chapman and Batanza's former teammate, David Robertson. He's on the Phillies now, and you had him ranked surprisingly low uh, for me. And, and I thought that maybe that would coincide with a higher ranking for Sir Anthony Dominguez. But you had Dominguez ranked low as well. And so are, are you ranking them both so low because you don't know which one of them is going to be the primary closer? Like, which one of the two do you think gets the most saves for Philly? And how do you justify ranking them both so low when we know that the Phillies are going to be a pretty good team? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the there's a couple answers. I think, number one, I think Dominguez is the best uh, relief pitcher on the Phillies. I think Dominguez has the strongest skills. Um, I think Robertson's skills may be on the decline. Um, and so that's one of the reasons. But I also think that Philly is going to be an absolute crapshoot with saves. I would not be surprised if they had three players who led the team with 15 saves each. You know, like they're going to win a lot of games, I think. You know, they've got a really good offense. They've got good enough pitching. But, you know, Gabe Kapler has shown that he has very little interest in fantasy owners and their saves that they want to get, you know, and so he's going to be using folks in the highest leverage situation that he trusts the most. He's going to be playing matchups. Um, and so, you know, one of the reasons why I'm down on Robert is, you know, his first pitch strike rate uh, was down throughout last year, but over his last 15 
Games last year, it was down at 56.3%. His zone percentage was at 37.5%. So both control metrics very well below at league average. And then his in-zone contact rate was all the way up at 93%. So essentially, like, every single hitter on pitches inside the zone was making contact at the rate of Jose Ramirez. So, you know, that just gives you a sense of, like, how he wasn't making folks miss. So I think that's one of the reasons why I'm down on Robertson a lot. Um, I'd be higher on Dominguez if I knew that he'd go after saves, but, you know, neither of them is good enough outside of saves, I think, to roster at this point in time. And so that's kind of why I'm down with both of them. Something that uh, I did a closer preview on my podcast and something that Brian Slack, who joined me for that podcast, mentioned was that, um, you know, Kapler and uh, was uh, mentioned in the media that Robertson is really good against lefties throughout his career. Um, and so that they might use him because they don't have a, a really good lefty in that bullpen. And so that raises concerns for me, too, about whether he's going to access saves. And so for that reason, I, I faded him pretty hard in my rankings. Yeah, fair enough. I just think that they're both, Robertson and Deming is both likely to get a handful of saves and probably double-digit saves. And even if Robertson is on the decline, like, it doesn't seem like a steep decline at this point, and so I'm still willing to count on, you know, a K per nine north of 10, uh, you know, pretty good ratios. And, I, again, I think the innings that he gives you are going to be quality reliever innings for the most part, and if he chips in, you know, say 12 to 18 saves to go along with that, I think that's worth owning for the most part. And so, I don't know, I, I think that there's upside for more than that, and that's why I have him ranked higher, but... That is interesting, kind of just the overall team philosophy and how that impacts how you rank the potential closing options for Philly. Let's wrap up the big differences with Trevor May of the Twins. I, I mean, this is one of those bullpens that's still a little nebulous. Like, we don't know exactly who the closer is going to be there in Minnesota. So why does Trevor May crack your top 20 relievers? Well, I really like um, May's uh, skills a lot. Um, I like them the most in that bullpen. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Blake Parker. If you look at Blake Parker last year, he really kind of struggled and the skills bear that out, although he has looked good this spring. So that's that might make me fade May a little bit um, because I think, you know, Parker's already on uh, on a contract. I think he's on a one year deal. And so giving him saves is not a it's not something where they're going to have to pay uh, more for him later on because he gets saves. And so. You know, that, that may make it more of a committee. There's also Taylor Rogers, who was really good last year. And so it's not that, um, you know, there's, there's terrible competition for me. I've always really liked the skills over the last 15 games. Um, last year, you know, he, he had a strikeout rate of 37.5%, a walk rate at 4.6%, so a 33%, you know, K minus walk rate. Uh, the swinging strike rate was pretty good, you know, uh, over that same period of time around 13. Uh, 13%, 14%. His in-zone contact was down at 78.1%. And the control metrics were okay. First pitch strike rate a little bit lower, but the zone percentage a little bit higher. So overall, you know, really strong uh, strikeout skills, uh, decent control metrics, and and all of that kind of combines. And I think the Twins are going to be pretty good this year. Um, And so, you know, for that reason, I really do like May, although I would say that since I've done this ranking, you know, there's been some mention of a committee approach because Parker has looked good uh, and Taylor Rogers is really good and, and a lefty. And so for that reason, I may not be as interested and I may have to drop him a little bit in the rankings. But 
overall, I do like May a lot just because I think the skills are very, very strong. Let's talk about a few of the other kind of key committees or closer battles, potentially. Um, start with St. Louis. Jordan Hicks versus Andrew Miller. I feel like both of these guys can remain viable in fantasy, but there's this other narrative that says that maybe Alex Reyes or Carlos Martinez could end up as the closer there. Uh, how are you sorting through that bullpen, and who do you like to lead that team in saves? Yeah, I mean, in terms of saves, it's going to be tough. I mean, saves are always a product of opportunity. I'm not a big fan of Jordan Hicks. I know that he's throwing 103 uh, this spring, and, and if he goes in there throwing 103 all year long, then maybe it'll be a different story. But the underlying skills are, were pretty bad last year. Swinging strike rate uh, well below league average, first pitch strike rate below league average, zone percentage below league average. 13.3% walk rate, 7.4% K minus walk rate, so lower than half of what you know a really good reliever um, would have. Uh, 5.21 walks per nine, K per nine my, under nine. He really got away with a low BABIP, um, you know, and even the WHIP was at 1.34. For me, those aren't closer skills, and and until he throws the shows the ability to get the ball over the plate and get swinging strikes against guys, then I'm not really going to buy into him. For that reason, I prefer Andrew Miller in this situation. Whether or not he's actually going to you know, have an opportunity to get saves, I'm not sure. But his skills really started to rebound. He struggled in the middle of last year. He got injured. He was on the DL. But towards the end of, uh, of the season, over his last 15 games, his swinging strike rate was rebounding, first pitch strike rate rebounding, in-zone contact rate falling. So everything looked like it was getting back to signature Andrew Miller. And so for that reason, I would go Miller over Hicks. Uh, I do think that Hicks is likely to get the opportunities to start out the year. And that always that brings with it an incredible amount of value. But Hicks is just somebody I think is going to be dangerous to own this year. And so I may look really bad if he keeps pumping 103 and hitters can't hit it at all. But until I actually see that in the regular season, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, Hunter Strickland was pumping high velocity like that, too, and, and he stinks. So, yeah, a, a high pitch velocity is not everything, even though it, it does generally indicate, uh, you know, good skills. I, I'm generally with you. I like Miller more just because we've seen him do it before, and I feel like that sort of proven commodity thing matters to me as a fantasy owner, and I think it often matters to... Uh, you know, major league managers more than we might want to admit. So I'm with you on Miller being my preferred target, uh, but I do have Hicks ranked higher at the moment, like just barely, because I agree with you. I think he's probably going to get the first shot to close there. How about Milwaukee with Josh Hader versus Corey Knebel? Kind of same question. Do you think both these guys can remain viable, and who do you think is going to lead that team in saves? Yeah, I think um, I think Knievel is going to lead the team in saves. Knievel is a guy that I'm targeting in a lot of drafts. I really like like him, especially with the uh, the injury to uh, Jeremy Jeffress this spring. I don't think it's supposed to t- hold Jeffress out too long. But Knievel showed some really, really good skills towards the end of last year. I hadn't been that into him, you know, heading into last year. He was actually one of my bold predictions that he was going to be terrible. Um, and that's because his control metrics were really, really bad. But after he came back from, um, uh, from, uh, from the minors, after he was relegated to the minors, he really took off. Uh, over his last 15 games, he had an 18% swinging strike rate. His in-zone contact rate was in the mid-60s, which is insane. Uh, and it was the same rate as his first pitch strike rate, which was really strong. Uh, his zone percentage was really strong. 
um, and then he was getting folks to chase uh, at about a league average rate. And so all of that tells me that, um, you know, he made some sort of adjustment last year um, and that that um, is going to make him really, really successful. Um, his uh, his he, he was striking out over his last 15 games. He struck out 57 percent of the batters he faced, which is absolutely insane. A 52 percent K minus walk rate. I don't know if I've ever seen it uh, that high. I think Hader is really good. I think he falls into the kind of Bell and Patances camp of a guy who's not going to get a ton of saves, but who's going to get really nice ratio, ratios and, and, and strikeout rates. The one thing that I'd say about Hader is I think that Hader is very good. I don't think there's any doubt necessarily in my mind about that. Um, and his swinging strike rate for the full season was at 19%, which is kind of crazy. Um, but over the course of the year, you know, it, it did go down a little bit. And in the second half, it, it wasn't quite as robust. Like it peaked at 23.3%. It finished at 17.3%. That's still really good. But I don't, I don't think he's going to replicate the type of season he had last year, uh, in terms of, um, strikeouts, strikeouts per nine necessarily. Um, and so that's one thing about Hader. I think Hader will get saves because I think they'll put him in the highest leverage situations. I think more often than not, that's going to be in the seventh and the eighth uh, versus the ninth inning. So I think Knievel leads the team in saves. Um, I, I think they're both worthwhile considerations, but I lean Knievel over Hader. Yep, my read's the same on that one. How about the White Sox? Alex Colabay, Kelvin Herrera, Nate Jones. Like, is it even worth trying to figure out these closers on bad teams? Uh, I mean, it, it is and it isn't. Like, if, if you get the if you get the right guy, it's worth it, but maybe we should be looking to lock up uh, more stable guys earlier in the draft. But I don't know. Tell me how you feel about these committees on bad teams and tell me who you like on the White Sox. Yeah. You know, I think it, it all, it all depends, you know, and this is why it's really hard to draft closers for me. I absolutely hate drafting closers because so much of it, it's not like you're buying, you're buying the skills and like you obviously should go with the skills, but if you're not getting saves, it's really hard to stick guys in your lineup uh, it, for the, White Sox situation, I don't mind getting closers on bad teams as long as I think they're good. I think as long as I think that they're skilled. Uh, I do think that Colome is a skilled closer. I think that he's better um, than the competition there. He uh, throws a cutter, which uh, has worked really well for him. He started throwing it more last year, um, was really successful with it uh, when he went over to the Mariners. Um, he's got really nice skills, you know, both uh, in terms of the control metrics and strikeout metrics and so i i i lean colome here i don't think he's terrible value going around pick 200 um, in drafts i think he's a guy that they want to you know they want to get saves and they want to trade him to somebody um for some valuable prospects and and i think um for that reason i i think i think colome is the best and so i think they're going to go with him um would i be surprised if they went somewhere else you know probably not you know for that reason end of the game saves is just an absolute crapshoot so how does that potential for an in-season trade affect how you rank a guy like Colome? Like, do you bump him down in your rankings when you expect that that might be the case? Uh, I might bump him down a little bit. I mean, I think the way that I would approach it is, you know, I do think Colome is going to get traded. I want to say that this is his last year before free agency. I think he's definitely going to get traded. But the way that I would think about it is if he's the closer for Chicago between now and August, you know, with trade deadline, um, you know, I think he still has an opportunity to rack up 20 plus saves during that period of time, even on a bad team. I don't think that that precludes him from getting 
maybe it precludes him from getting 40, but not necessarily uh, reaching that 20 marker. And then when he gets traded, you know, he could get traded to a team that needs a closer um, and become the team's trader closer, or he could get traded and he becomes no longer valuable or fantasy relevant. Um, And so maybe like, maybe, you know, give him 75% of his full season value, uh, assuming that maybe, you know, that he's the closer for, 50% 50% or more of the year. And then if he gets traded, there's maybe a 50-50 shot that he gets traded to be the closer on a competing team, especially if he's pitching well. You know, so that seems like maybe a, an, a reasonable approximation. Um, you know, so that might be how I would handle that. You know, project him for like 20 saves or so if, if he gets uh, gets the job. Um, no more than that, though. No. Yeah, I mean, for me, closer is such a fluid position in the first place. Like, they, they change so often that you might as well just draft assuming that guys are going to hold the role for, you know, three to four months or whatever. And, and that's about it. And <laughs> I, I think Colome is a good example of that. The the tricky part with him is that he is competing potentially with these other relievers on his own team. And, and so that's a more complicated scenario. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree that he's probably the most skilled of those three relievers. I mentioned Colome Herrera and Jones. Yeah. The, the trade situation could affect, you know, how that plays out. We'll see. Just in general, Toby, who are your favorite values outside the top 20 relief pitchers? Yeah, um, you know, one thing I would say is I do think I do like Jose Leclerc and Kirby Yates early on, uh, probably higher ranked than most other guys. Uh, going later on, you know, I do like the kind of Ryan Brazier, Matt Barnes combo. Um, if you're able to draft both of them, I like Brazier probably a little bit more. He hasn't pitched yet this spring, but I think his contract situation and the skills towards the end of last year lend themselves well. And so he's kind of like going after an ADP of 300. So just taking a shot in the dark at him, I think isn't a bad way to go. Um, you know, uh, Ryan Presley uh, of the Astros, like he may not get access to saves, but he's probably a top five relief pitcher in all of baseball. And so just from a skills perspective, I think he's really good. I also love Roberto Osuna, though, from a baseball perspective. And so I think that he would be good. Uh, Sergio Romo, uh, it looks like he may be the closer um, in uh, in Miami. And while that's not a luxurious job to have, um, the fact that he's going like at an ADP of 350 and maybe the, the closer there is enough value to kind of take a late season stab on it. Uh, Ty Buttry was was good towards the end of last year before getting injured, and Cody Allen has looked terrible. So he's one guy that I would take a look at. Adam Conley is a guy who's going pretty late. He's a lefty um, out of the bullpen. Um, he's the one lefty who's kind of vying for saves in Miami. And again, it's not a great closer situation, but he's got an ADP of over 400. It may even be in the 600s. Um, and but he's got a really nice uh, changeup, I think. Uh, that's that's pretty devastating. So I might look at a guy like that. And then one guy who's kind of like a, a super guy that I'm drafting in a lot of drafts with my last pick, who's kind of a super sleeper, I guess, um, would be Kyle Zimmer of the Royals. Uh, Boxberger was not very good last year. He hasn't looked great this spring. Uh, Wiley Peralta is not a good player, is not a good pitcher in Kansas City. And Zimmer so far hasn't given up a run this spring. He's pumping gas at 96. His stuff looks really, really good. Um, he's a really good kind of comeback story. And so I could see the Royals trying to pump up his value and maybe trying to get something in a trade for him by inserting him in the closer situation and 
He's also been the best arm bullpen arm in, in Kansas City so far this spring. And so he's a guy that I'm kind of speculating on as, as a deep, deep sleeper. Zimmer's an interesting one. I haven't really I didn't really know about him until you just brought him up. So I'll have to add him to my uh, list of players to look into, but that that's a good call. Um, I I fall on the other side of the Red Sox uh, discussion there. I prefer Barnes to Brazier just because you know, veteran arm there. Like he's he's been there a little bit longer. I, I feel like he's probably going to get the first shot to close. Uh, but I don't know. It could definitely go either way. Um, other guys I like kind of outside the top twenty. Uh, Archie Bradley again. I, I like the pitcher uh, even if he's not necessarily guaranteed all the saves there for Arizona. Adam Adovino, I mentioned him earlier when we were talking about the Yankees, and again, not necessarily a great bet for saves, but it seems like in the drafts that I've done, he's going later than Batonsis, later than Chad Green, and later than Chapman. Like, and it's one of those situations where if Chapman is a little shaky because of injury, I, I just want the cheapest possible fill-in, and that's Adovino. In in my experience, maybe ADP says something different. I, I like that you brought up uh, Butre for uh, the Angels. Uh, a couple other kind of dark horse candidates for saves. I would throw Joe Jimenez out there for Detroit and Yoshihisa Hirano for uh, the Diamondbacks in case, you know, Bradley doesn't get it done. I think those, along with a lot of the names you mentioned, uh, could be really good potential values late in your draft if you're trying to catch up at relief pitcher. And I do also want to echo your love for LeClerc and uh, Kirby Yates. Like, those are probably the two closers I'm paying up for the most often because they're in that sweet spot of you know highly skilled relievers but going cheaper than the the truly elite or considered elite guys like Edwin Diaz like Roberto Osuna like Blake Trinan uh, like Chapman and like Kelsey Kenley Jansen like you can let other people take those and you might be getting just as good of a reliever with Yates and LeClerc and you're getting them at a lower cost so that's typically the way I approach closer uh, in those like early to mid rounds. Do you have any other advice or recommendations for drafters, maybe for like leagues that use holds? Uh, for me, I just, my advice is to play it in season. Like holds kind of come up out of nowhere all the time. I try not to focus too much on it in my draft. Uh, do you do the same? Or, I mean, do you even have experience with, with holds leagues? How, how do you approach that stat category? Yeah, no, I think that's really good advice. I think if you're in a saves and hold leagues, I mean, I think there's two considerations. Number one is that generally speaking, the best closers will have a lot more uh, saves uh, than the best relievers will have holds. I think that generally holds pretty true, at least at the top of the of the closer slash hold market. Uh, maybe that I don't know. I'd actually have to look at that because maybe part of the reason is because the guys getting holds are also getting saves. Um, but if that's the case, then I'm pray I'm I'm fading relief pitchers pretty hard because like you mentioned, there's always guys who kind of come out of nowhere, you know, whether it's rookies, whether it's, you know, uh, veterans who move from the starting rotation to the bullpen, whatever it is, there's always guys who, you know, who come out of nowhere. And so instead of having to speculate on who's going to pitch the ninth inning so that they can get saves, you're now able to speculate on who's going to get the ball in the seventh, the eighth and the ninth. And if they get the ball anywhere in that range, uh, then they can bring you value. And so in that particular situation, I'm fading uh, relief pitchers um, and just, you know, going after, you know, like you mentioned, Ottavino, like that would be a, a great guy to go after an Ottavino or, you know, uh, Batances, Andrew Miller, Josh Hader, guys like that would would get an increase in value. So, you know, that's kind of the nice thing is that you can go after the skills instead of necessarily trying to. Uh, figure out who's going to get that opportunity to get the save. 
Definitely good stuff. Now, we're almost there. Uh, quickly want to go over Catcher, and I don't really want to dive into the ranks specifically here because it's such a dumpster fire of a position in the first place, and I kind of just want to get a, a more general read on how you approach the position. Like, Do you feel like it's okay to make Catcher a bit of an afterthought when you're drafting, and what ranges of Catchers do you typically pick from? So I think, yeah, I mean, the the one catcher versus two catcher um, league thing is the big question. In a one catcher league, then I, I don't, you know, it is an afterthought. Not in the sense that I'm not thinking about who I want to take, but in the sense that I'm just going to wait, right? Like, um, you know, maybe in a 15-team league, I might, 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 might target some of the guys going a little bit, you know, towards that kind of like top eight or something like that. But even in that case, they're probably going to fall pretty far down. Um, you know, your draft board, because you just don't want to get stuck with like somebody who isn't good. Um, but I'm generally just going to wait, uh, especially if it's like a 12 team league. Like if it's a 12 team league and it's one catcher, 12 team or less, and it's one catcher, just wait. Have it be your last draft pick. I mean, I think that's fine. If you're in a daily league with a deep bench too, what I would look at is, you know, going after something like a, uh, you know, I know we're going to cover it a little bit, but like like a Yang Gomes and Kurt Suzuki and just rotate them in and out on a daily basis if you have a deep bench. Same with Francisco Cervelli and like Elias Diaz. Um, you know, look at those kind of combos that are really good where maybe they lose value because they are in a, a timeshare. So one catchers, I think, is pretty, pretty simple, as you've mentioned, like just just wait because there's not enough differentiation uh, between the positions to make impact. Two catchers leagues, on the other hand, I think is a real, yeah, I think catcher play is, is really important. I hate having bad players on my teams. Uh, so <laughs> the two catcher leagues, I'm generally going to try to go after one of the top seven catchers, um, now that, uh, Sal Perez is injured. So, um, I'm generally, I'm generally not going after JT Real Muto. I just did just get him in a draft that I was co-managing, uh, an online championship, uh, through NFBC. Um, and my the buddy who I was drafting with really likes JT Real Muto. And catchers actually in 12-team leagues, um, two catcher leagues, it's actually a really good point of differentiation from the teams if you can get one of those really, really good guys because there is such a such a smaller difference between replacement value and uh, a lot of the guys going later in drafts that I think you really can separate yourself in that instance. In the 15-team leagues, yeah, I'm trying to get a top-seven catcher who I normally find myself getting is Yadier Molina. I'm a really big fan of Molina. The average is solid, better than league average. He's, he's got some pop uh, with uh, increased hard hit rate, increased fly ball rate over the last couple of years, and he actually finds a way to steal some bases, even though he's like the fifth lowest player in baseball. Uh, so he's a guy that I like to look at. I also like Danny Jansen a lot this year. Um, so he's a guy who's moving up pretty quickly in drafts, but you can generally get him like 160 to 180 right now. The skills are very, very good. Now that Russell Martin's out of Toronto, he has the job to himself. I think he could really explode onto the scene this year. So if I miss out on that top seven, I'm definitely going after him. Uh, if Gary Sanchez falls to me, he's my number one catcher. So like I got him at 675, I think, in TGFBI. So that would be an example of where he falls beyond where he should. He's actually like my 23rd ranked player overall uh, from a valuation standpoint. Some guys that I like going kind of later, if you if you want a back end catcher one or a really good catcher two, is Francisco Cervelli of the Pirates. Uh, I really like him. He was very very good before getting injured last year. 
um, and, and, and really solid skills from like a contact and plate discipline perspective, mm-hmm. as well as batted ball quality. And so, um, I really like him to be able to continue that success, uh, this year. So those are some of the guys that I'm targeting kind of where I'm going. I'm definitely trying in a two catcher league, 15 teams, definitely going for, you know, one of those guys that tends to go between 140 and 160, one of those top seven guys. Yeah, we're pretty similar in our one catcher league approach. Like, it might actually seem counterintuitive, but I'm generally more willing to target the quote unquote good backstops if the league is a little bit shallower. This is kind of similar to how I view like the premium tight ends and the premium quarterbacks in fantasy football. Like, I just feel like because there's more replacement value available at other positions. I'm more okay paying for that positive differentiation at catcher. The thing is, I don't always view the the good catchers as the ones who get drafted highly uh, because, I mean, usually in a one-catcher league, someone I like is usually going to fall past ADP or, or where they should go. Um, last year, that was Yasmani Grandal. Like, I drafted him all over the place. This year, to me, it feels like Buster Posey and it feels like Danny Jansen. Those are the two guys who seem to be going later than they should relative to my evaluation of them. If I miss on those guys that I like, uh, I will wait forever in a one-catcher league. I will just you know, make it one of my last you know, three picks and grab somebody who's just going to get at-bats as kind of a placeholder until I figure out a rotation I like, like you talked about with the Nationals guys, or till I hit on somebody like you know Danny Jansen coming up, like this year's Danny Jansen, whoever that might be. In, in a two-catcher league, my approach is different than yours. I, I mostly just don't want to be the worst or second. Like, I don't want to finish in, like, the bottom third of the league at the position. Uh, it... Sometimes I, you know, ride that hairy edge a little bit too closely uh, and I end up, you know, at the bad end of catchers. But in general, I feel like most teams are kind of wading through the gutter at catcher. So I don't see as much return on investment in chasing that sort of catcher differentiation. To put it another way, like while I can afford to be sort of bad at catcher because that's a pretty level playing field with most of the other teams, and I'm not paying an opportunity cost associated with spending on the best catchers. I, I don't think I can afford to be like to fall behind at outfield or at starting pitcher or at other positions. And does that make sense? Yeah. You know, looking at the valuations, I, I tend to, you know, see that, you know, see a little bit more value in some of those higher catchers, but, you know, it definitely makes sense in the, in, in thinking that, um, you know, there, there isn't going to be that much of a differentiation beyond, a lot of catchers. And, and one thing that I see a lot of people doing is they'll get like Gary Sanchez or a really good catcher. And then they'll wait till the very end to get a catcher too, who's pretty bad. And I feel like that kind of mitigates a little bit the advantage that you get by getting a Sanchez. So if you are committed yeah, to like yeah. being good at catcher, I think you need to be committed at, you know, kind of being, being willing to invest a couple picks before the ADP of 300. Right. So in general, like what I'm trying to do when I do wait, 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 wait as long as I can before just trying not to finish in that bottom third at the position, like I I mostly just tend to chase at bats. So that means I also really like Francisco Cervelli uh, because the the at bats that he gives you are pretty quality, like the plate skills, uh, you know, the walk rate, all that stuff, like really makes like when he does play, like those are going to be good at bats for me. Um, Omar Narvaez is another guy who seems to profile as that type of player, although I don't think he's proven it quite enough at this point for me to feel comfortable about it. Uh, With that said, I've still drafted him a little bit. Uh, Jonathan Lucroy is not a player I like, but it seems like he's locked into at-bats for the Angels, so he's a guy I've targeted a fair amount in two catcher leagues. Um, And then I will just look to kind of grind the waiver wire, trying to find 
you know, sneaky pickups, you know, advantageous weeks for certain guys in terms of splits, like, oh, you know, this side of the catcher platoon has, like, four really good matchups this week, so I'll, I'll play, I'll pick him up and play him or whatever. But yeah, in general, I'm just chasing volume when I do wait, so either I'm going for the guys who are, are slated to get a lot of at-bats, like Cervelli, like Narvaez, you know, relative to the other, you know, cheap catchers, or I'm looking for guys who, when they do play, are going to contribute, you know, more you know, per at bat in certain categories. Like Mike Zanino is the classic example of like the catcher who hits a ton of home runs. He just kills your batting average doing it. I I think like a a better version of that this year might be Robinson Chirinos. I haven't really drafted him anywhere, but you know, looking at his projections, he seems like the type of catcher who I would be interested in as like my catcher one, if I waited in a two catcher league, does that, I mean, does that kind of vibe with where you're at or in terms of how you understand like, my approach to the catcher position. Do you think he fits that mold well enough? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Uh, let's briefly run through a, a few situations at catcher, just to try to predict the playing time splits. Uh, you mentioned the nationals. Let's begin there. Uh, Jan Gomes, Kurt Suzuki. Do you feel like this is 50, 50? Do you give an advantage one way or the other? Uh, where are you at on, on these two backstops? Uh, Gomes is the better catcher you know, from a defensive perspective. So I give him the edge a little bit. You know, Suzuki, uh, I think, is the better hitter. Uh, but I think it's going to be pretty close to a 50-50 split. And for that reason, I don't have either one of them uh, on my team at all. How about the Pirates? Uh, Cervelli, who we've talked about a little bit, and his you know partner in that catching group, Elias Diaz. Do you see Diaz cutting into Cervelli's playing time? Because, you know, prior to this season, Cervelli was a, a pretty stable, stable source of at-bats. Yeah, you know, I am a little bit worried about it. I mean, I'm I'm worried and I'm not in the sense that I, I own both of them in a lot of places because I think they're both really good hitters. It's just one of those kind of sad situations where, you know, two guys who could really contribute a lot to fantasy teams just end up being on the on the same team. You know, I do think that Cervelli will get the bulk of the time. He generally has when they've both been healthy. Um, I would feel a lot better about that if Cervelli was better defensively than he is, but they're both pretty bad, at least from my pitch framing perspective. That is a little bit of a concern, but even when you look at Cervelli, for instance, last year in just 404 plate appearances, you know, he was able to uh, hit 12 home runs, 259, 39 runs, 57 RBI, you know, really nice 12.8% walk percentage. Uh, Diaz was able to um, contribute a decent amount as well. You know, I, I do like Cervelli more. Cervelli is the guy that I've been targeting a lot. I think Diaz is very good, and I think they're both. Uh, both of them can still contribute more than maybe your, you know, your your thirtieth ranked catcher or twentieth you know, to thirty ranked cat thirtieth ranked catcher. And I think for that reason, you know, uh, I, I've been kind of targeting targeting both of them you know, a little bit in drafts. Cervelli's definitely my most owned catcher, though. He's my catcher, too, in, in the vast majority of my leagues because I just think that Diaz is a very good hitter, but Cervelli is, I think, almost equal uh, in terms of his uh, of his um, hitting and, you know, from an OBP perspective and just the way that he um, goes about the game uh, from a hitting perspective, I think he's, he's he's excellent. So that's a long way of saying I think it'll be relatively close to 50-50, but I think they can both reduce value even at that because because the catch position is so weak. How about the three-headed monster in Minnesota? Jason Castro, Mitch Garver, Williams Astudio, 
what are you doing with that situation? It seems like a stay away to me, but we know Astadio has that kind of prospect pedigree when he does play. Like, are you willing to pay for that or are you going to let that be someone else's problem? Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting situation. I have Astudio ranked as the highest catcher uh, on mine. I think I have him ranked 20th. And that's because I actually think he's going to get game time at third base. Uh, with Miguel Sano being out, he'll get some third base at the beginning. I think Astudio is one of the examples of a guy who, even if he gets to 350 plate appearances this year, because his batting average will be so high and because he's such a better hitter than most catchers, whether he's playing catcher or not, uh, I think he's going to be like a top 15 catcher. So it's just a matter of whether he gets those plate appearances. I think Castro is going to get the most time um, because he's easily the best catcher. Uh, they, they paid a hefty amount for him in the free agency because he's one of the best framers in the league. And I think that's what separates him from Garver and Astudio. Uh, Garver is the is is a very good hitter too, but he's just really bad defensively. And so, you know, if I were to guess, I would say that Castro gets two games, you know, for each one of Garver's after Dio starts the season playing some at third base and maybe, uh, you know, uh, one one game a week at catcher or something like that. So maybe it's something like three or four a week for Castro, you know, one or two for Garver and then one for Astudio or something of that nature. I think they'll split it up like that. Um, I think Astudio definitely has the highest you know, value. I think Castro can also return. You know, he was the guy that I targeted a lot uh, two years ago in drafts or maybe even last year in drafts initially before he got injured because he can, he can provide, you know, he's got, he's good in OBP leagues. He can hit 10 home runs. He can, you know, get you 40, 40 in terms of runs and RBIs and in the catcher landscape right now, you know, that isn't atrocious. So it's a bad situation in terms of playing time, but I, I do think Astudio is worth, taking a gamble on as a catcher too, especially with the Sano injury, because I think his upside, I mean, imagine if he got 500 to 600 plate appearances, you could easily see him being a top three catcher, you know, when it's all is said and done. I'm going to throw one more at you. The Padres situation, Austin Hedges, Francisco Mejia. Are you drafting either one of these guys? How do you see that situation playing out? I'm not really drafting either one of them. I think a lot of it depends on, um, how they see this year playing out and how their year starts. I think Mejia is not a good defensive catcher. Uh, I think that, um, you know, he's, he's an okay hitter. Um, but I also think that Hedges is a pretty good hitter. Like he got better last year. He definitely improved in terms of his contact rate, um, and his plate discipline last year. Um, and on a per plate appearance basis, he was pretty strong. Um, and he's also much better defensively. Uh, than Mejia. So I actually think that I give a slight edge to Hedges, but I'm not really targeting either one of them because I I don't see the upside being that great for either one of them. Good deal. Well, that'll wrap us up, man. We did it. We got through all the positions. Toby, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Uh, why don't you remind everyone where they can find you and your work? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thanks again, Greg. I really enjoyed being on here. This is probably like my favorite format where we've just kind of gone through each one of the positions, just great questions and have really enjoyed the time here. Uh, so folks, if you're interested in hearing me blabber on a little bit more about uh, fantasy baseball, uh, you can listen to my podcast, which is Batflip Crazy. I just search for that on iTunes or any other podcast platform. And the best way to connect with me otherwise is on Twitter at Batflip Crazy. Uh, I'm uh, fairly active on there and try to respond to all the questions that I get. 
Um, so definitely hit me up there if you have any questions. And and yeah, thanks again, Greg. It's it's really been a pleasure to be on the podcast. Yeah, man, it was great having you. We'll have to do it again sometime. And uh, listeners, thank you for for joining in as well. Uh, if you have any questions or feedback for the show, uh, please hit me up on Twitter at Greg Sauce. Uh, please take the time to rate and review the show. Subscribe if you can, uh, if you will, please, pretty please. I was planning to set the show to come out on Monday or Tuesday of next week, but spring training can change so fast. Like, I feel like I need to get this thing up ASAP. So why wait? Uh, let's just give the listeners two shows this week. And uh, next week uh, might be back with a different topic altogether, or maybe I'll take the week off. We'll see. Uh, but anyway, thank you all for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Adios. Adios.